VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, October the 28th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing this. Come on with an edition of the program. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So right off the bat, big thanks to Linda and Tim for sitting in for a couple of days while I navigated a bug. I think I'm on the mend, but looking forward to speaking with you today. So I can't get over just how glorious October has been. And apparently yesterday there were some 14 weather records either broken or tied. St. John's, the hot spot over 21 degrees on the 27th of October. And it's Halloween party weekend, I suppose. Not sure there's any of those soirees on my schedule this weekend. But yeah, uh, I did hear off the top of the program yesterday with Tim. There was some conversation apparently that Jerry Lynn Mackey had an interview on the morning show, about aging out. When is it too old to be out trick-or-treating? I don't know. I don't get put off when some of the older kids come around a little later in the evening to collect a few treats. <laughs> the one picture that I think about every Halloween is the last trick-or-treater we got. This is some years back. A uh, fella, obviously, well into his teens, is well in excess of six feet tall, and he shows up at the door. He's got no costume on except for just this bare head. Right? A bear, B-E-A-R, like grizzly bear. A bear head and his bag for collecting treats? Liquor store bag. <laughs> uh, he may have been a little bit too old. Okay. So today with some of the nuclear war uh, saber rattling going on over in Ukraine and Russia, it was 62 years ago today in 1962 where the world was waiting with bated breath to see what would happen between the Russians and the Americans, of course, regarding the Cuban Missile Crisis. It came to an end today. In history, the 28th of October. So the Coles notes, of course. Khrushchev, the Soviet Union leader at the time, he finally agreed to dismantle his nuclear warheads in Cuba in exchange for then-American President John F. Kennedy Jr. to remove NATO missiles from Turkey and Italy. So that was the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis today in 1962. All right, what's this scribble? Oh, today in history, 1978, number four, Bobby Orr. Bobby Orr, the great Bobby Orr, scored his first-ever career goal uh, against Detroit, so Bobby Orr, man, how about that? And what a great story come from Port of Basque. I know Brian Button was on yesterday, the mayor of the town, and talking about the fact that the staff told him there was a bunch of packages had shown up, and they're from the Toronto Maple Leafs. And, of course, Mayor Button has been up to his eyeballs in Fiona recovery, as well as many people on the southwest coast. So he arrives back at the office, gets a chance to open it up, and there's all kinds of Toronto Maple Leaf swag including a leaf sweater with button on the back, signed by President Brendan and Shanahan, with a little note, you know, talk about what's in the packages, and they're going to be distributed to some of the big Leafs fans in the town. And, of course, Brian Button, apparently one of the biggest Toronto Maple Leaf fans in the province, we're told. So that's a pretty nice touch by the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, so good on him. Apparently one of the sweaters also going to go to the big Leafs fan. Great name, Smokey Osmond. Smokey's getting a sweater. A jersey. Pardon me. All right. Oh, and sticking with hockey for a couple more notes. We are looking for gear at the Avalon Celtics Minor Hockey Association. So we've got a bunch of newcomers that have joined the league, uh, pardon me, joined the club. And so we've created a learn to skate, learn to play program, but we need some equipment. So over the weekend, you have two opportunities to drop by the DF Barnes Arena on Pennywell Road. Saturday, tomorrow from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Sunday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. The real key is helmets and skates. 
but any nicely gently used hockey equipment will absolutely take it any surplus gear will just go into our gear star gear storage or fund or i don't even know what we refer to it formally at the club but please do indeed drop by have a look at the rink drop off some gear and help some of these in particular some new ukrainian hockey players who have joined our club for this hockey season let's get them some good gear so they can have a bit of fun and also i don't know if you noticed this one last hockey no promise so it was a couple of nights ago that phil kessel I mean, Phil Kessel has been a real picked-on hockey player throughout his career. He doesn't necessarily show up to camp in the best of shape. He's kind of a bit of a pudgy hockey player, you know, much unlike some of the real formidable sizes and shapes that we see in so many professional athletes, and especially in hockey players. So Kessel, all of that stuff, and all the talk about him living on hot dogs and soft drinks and whatnot. A couple of nights ago, he became, became the NHL's Ironman. He played in his 990th consecutive game. Scored his 400th goal the same night. So all the raz that Phil has taken over the years for his shape and his physicality and hot dogs and all the rest of it, even though some of that's just really exaggerated, he's the NHL Ironman. Used to be held by Dougie Jarvis, Montreal Canadian, and then it was broken by a guy named Keith Yandel when he was playing for Philadelphia. When his record came to an end, he was a healthy scratch because Yandel became ineffective, very much unlike Phil Kessel. So, pretty cool stuff. Way to go, Phil. And one of the reactions to, he now plays for the Las Vegas Knights, one of the quote tweets came from Cal Ripken Jr., the all-time pro sports Ironman, 2,632 consecutive games, beating a record that was held by Lou Gehrig. It stood for some 26 years, or maybe even more than that, before, yeah, absolutely more than that, before Cal Ripken Jr. played in his 2,632nd game. Just unbelievable stuff. Anyway, let's keep going. All right. So we know in the recent past there's been a real wave of immigrants coming to Newfoundland and Labrador. In the past year or so, about a 1,000 Ukrainians. And, of course, that's as much a humanitarian effort as it is an immigration play. But then the report, which kind of doesn't really go move in lockstep with what we're seeing recently, between 2016 and 2021, Newfoundland and Labrador received the fewest number of immigrants in Atlantic Canada, a real small number. And we've eclipsed that by and large, in the last 12 to 18 months. It's really been a, quite a different scenario here. Now, the trick is, will and where, where will they stay, and how long will they stay? You hear me talking, there's a big social and economic upside to immigration, but that said, and it doesn't make you a bad person to ask questions aloud. For instance, it's got to be streamlined, and it's got to be well-organized. Not to insinuate it's not, but we do indeed have to understand the housing-related issues. Welcome to the province, and good on the folks who are working on the immigration file, but we have to understand the housing issue. There's a massive housing crunch, especially in this part of the province. So what are we doing about it? Add to it access to health care. What are we doing about it? We know that the Ukrainian immigration uh, stream has been without the federal supports that are usually in place. So it will fall back to the Association of Canadians and the province, many Ukrainians still in hotel rooms. And so again, for people to ask questions about the housing-related matters, It's a fair question, and I'm sure even some Ukrainian newcomers are also asking questions of themselves and of the government and of the association about some safe lodging where they can just, you know, stand on their own two feet, get out there in the workforce to their level best to learn the language and off to the races. But had someone send me a note that, you know, it's really unfair that we're talking about those things in the same breath, but they're in the same breath. Anyway, you want to tackle it. We can do it. And then stories today, and again, I know it's a bit of broken record stuff, but we have got to figure out what is going on right across the country and in this province regarding food insecurity. 
when we see how quickly governments mobilize in the aftermath, say, for instance, of Hurricane Fiona. Everybody comes together. Everybody's pulling the rope in the same direction. Food insecurity, not so much. If we mobilize the way we do after natural disasters, when it comes to food and access to healthy food, then we'd probably be able to do a lot about it in short order. But we don't seem to be able to come up with the solutions to get people where they are. So a variety of things. You know, the food bank usage is spiking in the country, and the numbers are really quite something. So apparently, Food Banks Canada does an annual report. There was nearly 1.5 million visits to food banks in March. That's 15% more than the same month last year and 35% more than March of 2019. They survey some 4,750 food banks and community organizations. Here's some of the breakdown a little further. A 35% increase in two years. Four million meal snacks served in March of 2022. One in seven users are employed. 49% are on social assistance. 33% of users are children and 9% are seniors. And the numbers regarding seniors and children and people who are working are up in this province. At Bridges to Hope, they actually open up Wednesday nights now to accommodate folks who are indeed out there working for a living and still can't make ends meet and still need to avail of a food bank. So I'm going to keep banging that drum because we can talk about all the other issues of the day, but the food insecurity being experienced in this province and across the country is mind-boggling. And again, it's an absolute failure of governance. Modern-day Canada, first-world Canada, and those are the realities of life for millions of Canadians? Blows my mind. So what do we do here? There's a bit of confusing language coming, say, for instance, the town of Clarenville with backyard farming and homesteading. We need municipalities and the province to join forces and, of course, include MNL. Let's ramp up community gardens. Let's ramp up an access to backyard farming and homesteading. These are some simple solutions that are right there in front of us. Now, not everyone wants to have a backyard farm, and it's got to be done in orderly fashion. It can't be a free-for-all. There's all kinds of rules that will need to be in place, but let's maximize the opportunity. So if you're an organization like Food First NL or Dan Rubin and his group and every single community and, yes, the provincial government, let's put our heads together and start doing more. Community gardens can be a big answer. And, you know, good on folks like DRL and the Big Feed Club, bringing Costco products to where you are, save you some costly fuel prices to make your way in for the monthly visit to Costco or the Price Club. So the food insecurity has got to be addressed. We've got to know what's going on because it just boggles my mind how hungry so many people are in this country. But I'll tell you who's not going hungry, Gilbert Bennett. So new CEO at Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, Jennifer Williams, has done some good work. She has. Reducing the numbers of people in the executive ranks, capping off their compensation, doing away with performance bonuses. So, yes, I think Ms. Williams has, you know, taken away some $19 million annually in operational costs. Had to be done. But that begs the question why it wasn't done prior. So Gilbert Bennett, of course, the man who was at the top of the food chain regarding the Muskrat Falls project, and during the LeBlanc inquiry, he was mentioned by name, as was Ed Martin, for taking unprincipled steps, pre-sanctioned back in 2012, shielding the population and shielding the government for important business information that may indeed have changed the water on the beans. And here we are. And here we are all these years later, with who knows how much it's eventually going to cost, when it's ever going to be on stream in full, when all the problems are going to be rectified, and Mr. Bennett was at the helm. So when Stan Marshall took over, he didn't take Gilbert Bennett to task. He remained on the job. And so now Mr. Bennett is out. His work is done, as per a statement coming from Hydro itself and their communication lead. Yeah, his job is done. <laughs>
Not quite, so the powerhouse is completed, but the problems that persist regarding the Muscar Falls project are very much in front of us and very much going to impact our kilowatt rate charge in the future. But Audi goes, with a pretty decent compensation package. Now I know. There are executive contracts in place. Contracts have to be abided by, but we have to be just so much more careful when we hire people for these lucrative deals. And then at the end of the day, when obviously the performance is not what's required, we're left holding the bag, and the bag that Mr. Bennett is left holding is valued at about a million dollars. The golden handshake, if there ever was one. So two-year salary, totaling about $680,000, retirement allowance of $127,000, and some unused leave. And of course, it's in the contract, okay, but it's galling. It just is absolutely galling. The salt in that wound. I mean, these stories, it's about time Mr. Bennett is out. I've seen in Mac Gilbert Bennett over the years at various functions and what have you, but the proof is in the pudding that the project Boondoggle, Boondoggle seems to be a very light reference to Muskrat Falls at this moment in time, but Mr. Bennett is out. You want to talk about it as much as I don't want to? I absolutely will. Let's keep going. All right, a bit more positive note. And this is regarding the most recent industry showcase out in Placentia Bay. It was their 25th anniversary. Of course, the pandemic derailed some of the opportunities to get together for business exhibits and the networking that comes with it. So they had a great year this year. They maxed out the number of business exhibits that were in play. The hall was blocked. They may have outgrown the venue. All very, very good. So whether it be reps at the West, right, West White Rose project and or Argentia, some good things happening at the Port of Argentia, one of the most important things that came out of it, though, is a story that I heard about College of the North Atlantic CEO and President Elizabeth Kidd. We talk about skill shortages, and we have them in this province, and it's a big story right across the country. There is going to be conversation about work-life balance and the rate of pay and all of that. But Miss Kidd has absolutely hit the nail on the head here when she says, for companies that are struggling to fill the gaps, the said skilled shortage, why don't they, as opposed to going to job showcases uh, for university and post-secondary, post-secondary students, why not get them in high school? Why not begin the recruiting process in high school? Children or high schoolers who are interested in whatever it is, IT or engineering, whatever the case may be, if we can identify them then, the companies begin the relationship with them in high school. Help support them and subsidize their college learning or their university learning, whatever the case may be. Keep them close. Keep them in the fold. Summer positions to get to know the landscape for the company based on a contractual relationship they have so that when they graduate, when they have the skills required to be a uh, permanent full-time employee, you got them. You got the relationship. Mrs. Kidd, that makes every bit of sense in the world. It's good for the student. It's good for the company. It's good for the province. How much of that is being done, I'm not so sure. But we've got to make sure that if you are own and operate your own company or the leadership position at a company, worried about skill shortage, worrying about how immigration works to settle and to solve your problems, Miss Kidd has got the idea that I think really, it covers all the bases. Start with high school, help them through their university or college days, and then you got them. You will do away with some of the uncertainty about what happens now in the next two years, three years, four years, five years, because you got a plan in place. And the student will get the support. And they will probably end up being a really productive, effective employee because you've had a long-running relationship with them since they were teenagers, right? Anyway, that was a great idea. Coming forward from her, how are we doing on the telephone there, David? There was a lot I wanted to get to, uh, including a few things on the federal front. Now, the, the continued story about the mass exodus of psychologists from Eastern Health, 
That's as big a story as the number of people in the province without a family doctor. It absolutely is. They have a 45% vacancy rate for psychologists at Eastern Health. They've moved out to the private sector, and it's not all about the money. It's not all about the money, which has to be said repeatedly on these types of stories. It's about being valued and being referred to as interchangeable with social workers. And one psychologist in particular, uh, Dr. Tanya Lentz, she left Eastern Health because she felt it was unethical to be able to practice the way they were. And not just about being replaced or interchangeable with social workers. It was, you know, patients on the wait list for two, three years. There's even very few appointments in the private sector. But the number of psychologists that have left the regional health authority here in the eastern part of the province, that's every bit as big a story as what we're seeing in the, uh, the healthcare world regarding family doctors what have you. I saw this tweeted by one lady. Psychology at the Janeway Children Development uh, Wing has one psychologist. Child development is no longer accepting referrals for psychology. The lone psychologist will not be providing counseling, only providing ratings for ADOS. How is this not public knowledge and a big news story? It is a big news story. That was Stephanie. I'll leave her surname out of it, but I saw her tweet that out. And anyway, on the federal front, whether you want to talk about what we're hearing in the early weeks of the Emergency Act inquiry, which was legislated requirement, when invoked, of course, for the first time in the country's history, many people, of course, even though we're only a week or so in, they've already come to a conclusion whether or not the Emergency Act was required. We can have that conversation. And yes, we can talk about the $400,000 price tag for the Canadian delegation to be in London for the Queen's funeral and the $6,000 a night hotel room. Happy to take it on. And there's a big story out there today, some warnings being flashed by the uh, Parliamentary Budget Office Officer, Yves Giroux. That office is so critically important. They take a lot of the politics out so we can get down to the brass tacks of how and where the money is always being spent. This one is regarding the procurement of Navy vessels. And I think Colin's in the queue to talk about that. So I'll leave some of the details inside of that conversation for when me and Colin have a chat. We're on Twitter. Elon Musk's new play toy. Twitter, we're VOSIM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlinefeosim.com. But when we come back, let's have a great show. That only happens when you call. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number three. Say good morning to St. John City Council, representing Ward number two. She's the lead on housing, Ophelia Ravencroft. Good morning, Ophelia. You're on the air. How you doing, Patty? I'm doing okay. Right off the bat, a uh, bit of an awkward introduction there. My apologies. Let's talk housing. That's all right. Um, well, we've just, uh, it's, been, it's been a great time for housing, I think, in, in some ways. For those who uh, maybe watched the Committee of the Whole uh, that happened last week, uh, our quarterly housing update, I think, was a significant figure. Um, we're, we're aware credit, you know, that there is a significant uh, crisis of affordable housing in the city right now, and we're doing what we can to affect that, to affect positive change there from within our nonprofit housing division. Vacancy rates are down 25% from last quarter, and I think uh, we're on track to have them down a further 25% as of next quarter, which is great. This is exactly the kind of thing that we want to see happening. What kind of steps have been to- taken to see that positive improvement? Resourcing was one issue. Um, there was a there was a concern for a while around you know, how many folks are in the department, how quickly can we get applications processed, and so on. Um, there was actually a, a kind of knock-on effect of that that when we were properly resourced, had a you know a better staffing complement, and were able to do these things more effectively, the wait list actually went up a little bit, only because there were so many applications that were added to it. Um, but beyond that, you know, our own teams are constantly repairing units that are in need of repair in order to. Uh, gain occupation. We're pushing as hard as we can on some of this stuff to make sure that it's uh, that it's dealt with as quickly and effectively as possible. At give the end of the day, we don't want to see vacant units as part of our stock. 100%. So give us an idea of just how many units we're talking about and what 25% represents insofar as making them repaired and livable again. The 25% as an example for the next, I think currently we're sitting at about, I think it's around 60 vacancies. 
um, we're, I think it's about another 15 that are going to be free for next time, hence that 25% figure that I gave you. Um, in terms of repairs, it really could be anything. You know, any landlord, anybody who's ever rented out a piece of property is aware that the the level of repairs that could be needed after a tenancy is extensive, depending on who was there and what happened when the property is there. I can't comment on specifics just because each case is so individual, but we're always, but we try to be as flexible as we can, and uh, we try to get things done as quickly as we can. And I think that that number of the further fifteen in the next few months is uh, is a great start. That's municipal managed units. How about the city's role when we see all these complaints about the relationship between landlord and tenants? And sometimes it's presented as very one-sided that it's all bad landlords or it's all bad tenants. When of course it's a combination of the two. What what role can the city play when we talk about disrepair and or tenants who have been pushed out of their their rental because you know someone's maxing out their opportunity to cash out of their their equity and or move to Airbnb because I hear these stories seriously all day every day. What's the city's role when these types of things pop up? Well, I hear these stories too, yep. and and in, I've, I've lived through a number of them. I've, I've had partners and friends and many other folks that have been on you know that have been on the tenant side of it in particular that have experienced some of these issues we at the city when it comes to things like repairs and property standards this is where we come in um, our regulatory services division is you know pretty strong at responding to complaints and indications of things like disrepair uninhabitable homes they would we i've seen homes condemned i've seen uh you know those kinds of issues when complaints are made those those are things that uh, we are prepared to act on in terms of the relationship between landlord and tenant it is important to remember that in this province this is legislated predominantly through the provincial government, through mm-hmm. the residential tenancies division. Now that, you know, regardless, I'm not going to comment on what's happening internally there because I don't know their operation well enough. But what I do know is that, unfortunately, it is the case the wait times are quite long at the residential tenancies division. Um, for anyone who's had to file a complaint there, for anyone, be, be it landlord or tenant, you know that uh, finding a resolution, getting a hearing, anything like that can take a while, can take months in some cases. Um, I think speeding things up on that end is, is critical. If you're a tenant and you have an, and you're having a bad experience with a landlord who's, you know, who's harassing you in your home, who's not taking care of the property, uh, if you're if you're a landlord and you're renting to someone who's affecting the peaceful enjoyment of your other tenants and so on, um, there are certain there are avenues that you can go down that are maybe a little bit quicker. But unfortunately, much of this is still a relatively kind of laborious process. Um, that is something that we would point to, I think. And that's certainly something that I would point to as an area for improvement in this case. The more we can do to make sure that the RTD is well-supported, well-resourced, and is able to fulfill their roles effectively, uh, the more the more easily we'll be able to deal with this kind of thing. Yeah, because if it takes months, it's just too late. The, the problem is already almost over at that point because the relationship has been dissolved between the landlord and the tenant, and it's been weeks waiting for something that really should take days to resolve. Uh, let's move on to a community meeting that was held at the Hub the other night, and this regarding the potential for neighborhood watch groups to be created and some problem neighborhoods. And, you know, sometimes I think when we focus in on some so-called problem neighborhoods, we refer to it simply as a socioeconomic matter when it's not necessarily so. Like one of my good pals who lives in a very high-income neighborhood had the truck stolen right out of his driveway. So it's not just about one neighborhood or another. But what did you hear at that particular meeting? I, unfortunately, uh, what we heard at the, from the city, Jennifer McGrath was there from the neighborhood uh, watch uh, unit over our way, as well as the deputy mayor. I personally had a prior commitment and wasn't able to attend, which I, I truly regret. I'll certainly be at the next one. But I've been in contact with the residents in the neighborhood. I've seen what was said there, and I've spoken a lot with uh, some of the folks there, some of our own staff. And uh, what it seems like, there's a high level of frustration, I think, around crime, uh, around particularly questions of things like, you know, whether certain homes are being operated as lodging houses uh, without proper licensing under the city. Um, lodging housing in the city is defined as any housing that, as a matter of course, rents out to more to five people or more. They're, that is regulated under a separate bylaw. There's questions about that kind of thing. But certainly, I think the key issue, more than anything, was, was just around crime, um, was around theft, break-ins, 
uh, reports of this nature. And, and Patty, like you say, it is exactly that point. I've known people in you know all areas of the city, be it King William, Ken Mount Terrace, Mount Pearl, uh, outside of Mount Pearl, um, who have had things stolen out of the driveways, who've had their homes entered into. I myself live in a neighborhood that, you know, I don't think has that reputation, as you say, as a quote-unquote problem neighborhood. And somebody tried to get into my house last week. Um, it's it's a it's a fright, it's a frightening scenario for those who are living through it. But the, the thing you point out that is so critical is that these issues are much broader than what's happening in any one neighborhood. I just uh, I have a friend who lives in Beaumont Street. We were just talking about this last night, and she said, you know, it's it's terrifying to realize, especially after what happened on their street recently with that stabbing, um, that it seems like the stakes are getting a bit higher. Um, but maybe this is what happens, unfortunately. This is, while it's not an excuse, this is what happens to a certain extent when we have worsening socioeconomic problems, when we have worsening uh, poverty, inequality, in, uh, inflation, food prices skyrocketing, price of living, the cost of living skyrocketing, uh, you know, not of mental health supports and so on. All of this stuff kind of coalesces into something that becomes much bigger than what's happening in any one neighborhood or in any one area and requires those kind of uh, deeper solutions to be able to stamp it out. Neighborhood watch can be very helpful. You know, sometimes when folks have what they refer to as a nosy neighbor, there's nothing better than a nosy neighbor when it comes to, you know, scanning the neighborhood, keeping people up to date where they saw someone in cars one night. Or, you know, it's not in an effort to make people afraid. It's just an effort to keep people informed. So that's one step. But what do Neighborhood Watch supporters say when they think about the role that the police play? Because it's fine for citizens to be mindful of their neighbors' property and the like and to keep an eye on what the kids are playing out in the park. But what role and what relationship between Neighborhood Watch supporters and groups and the RNC? Because it's fine for me to try to scare someone away from breaking into my neighbor's minivan, but quite another when a uniformed officer does something about it. Very much so. And that certainly uh, that was a comment that was heard quite a bit, in fact, in that uh, in that meeting was that there were concerns with the level uh, of policing that was present. In some cases, folks, you know, had potentially had made calls maybe, and then the calls weren't responded to. In other cases, the calls were responded to, but they didn't feel the response was adequate. Um, I think the the question, the answer on their end, um, there's a, there is a debate that takes place within discussion of policing about resourcing as opposed to training around what's more effective in ensuring that police are able to respond to things in community in an effective way. Um, but it, there's definitely a role to play here. You know, there's the, the discussion around policing particularly in indigenous communities, queer communities, communities of color, uh, is obviously much more complex than that. And, you know, setting aside my own positions, which are much more in line, I think, with what those communities would say, at the end of the day, the police are the body that have jurisdiction over criminal matters. And at the end of the day, they will need to be able to respond to these things effectively within the system that we live in right now. So at the provincial level, uh, I want to see that the RNC is properly resourced, and I want to make sure that those officers are well-supported and well-trained to be able to respond to these issues effectively because they've got a critical role to play in this too. I don't understand the world of policing enough to make uh, big declarations on it, but when you hear from community members that say they see the police repeatedly visiting one home or another, one person or another, yet nothing changes, no one's ever dealt with, nothing, you know, there's no cracking down on what might be a house where they're simply selling drugs or an unofficial lodging unit like you refer to. So that's where people get confused about the role the police play because they may see them come all the time. But if the same characters are there the very next day, again, then what's actually happening? What, you know, how effective are the RNC being on their end of the bargain here? And that's not offered to be just a straight up criticism as some like incompetence or what have you. But it is a fair question. You're there all the time. You see this person all the time. You come to this house all the time, but nothing changes. Why? And that's something we can put to the RNC. I wasn't naming it at you because, of course, you're not representing that organization. Good to have you on the show, Ophelia. Thanks for the time. 
It's a pleasure. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. Sophia Ravencroft, the Ward 2 Councillor, lead on housing. It is indeed time to take a break. Try to stay on task here today. But, Colin, appreciate your patience. We do want to talk about this story regarding warnings coming from Yves Giroux, the Parliamentary Budget Officer. It's the procurement of Navy vessels. It's a whopping big price tag. And our good friends from the MTS Clinic, and MTS, of course, stands for the Medication Therapy Services Clinic at Memorial University School of Pharmacy, Dr. Kathy Balsam, and clinical pharmacist Jeremy McDonald. Join us to talk about what? We'll find out. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number one. Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Great today. Thanks. How about you? Good, thanks. I want to talk about our uh, military procurement process in this country. Uh with respect, uh, in particular, to big ticket items uh, like this, the uh, F-35 fighter jet. Mm-hmm. The uh, report that came out the other day about uh, our naval upgrades is going to cost about $300 billion, according to, Mr. D- to uh, Yves Giroux. And uh, the price tag just keeps on uh, climbing every time you blink, apparently. And, yeah, let's uh, add some context to it, uh, just so folks know, you know, because $300 billion is a big number. And this is, of course, the Canadian Surface Combatant Project, the long, this largest single expenditure in Canadian history, period. When it was first sanctioned, the price tag for the 15 vessels themselves was $26 billion, and now that's $84.5 billion. The $300 billion is arrived at with life cycle operational costs. So that's where it gets a little bit confusing for me because the original numbers were over 35 or over 30 years, and now the operational life cycle cost that Mr. Giroux is using is over 65 years. So it does indeed need some context to see how we got to $300 billion. And then, of course, you have... Uh, the inflationary pressure to make it today's dollars to add up to $300 billion. I just want to give people some back numbers to consider. Well, that's right. You know, you can, you can put a price tag on something 50 years out or 60 years out. Yeah. Uh, in, you know, you're just, you're, just, you're just like trying to predict what the weather is going to be uh, six months from now on this, you know. It, it's just, it's just a, you're throwing a dart at a dartboard, really. Um, your guesses would be as good as mine, right? Yeah, that's right. But... Uh, you know, it's it, we have a big problem uh, in this country, and 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 this uh, this program, this is surface ships, so we're talking frigates, destroyers, supply ships, and and uh, and and those types of ships. But what about our what about our subs? We have no sub capability, uh, practically speaking. We have uh, we bought a couple of uh, diesel electric subs from the Brits in the late 1990s. Used used uh, diesel electric ships as subs. And uh, I haven't heard anything on uh, upgrading our uh, subcapacity. You look at a year ago, the United States, United Kingdom, and Australia, they entered into a trilateral agreement to supply Australia with nuclear-powered subs from the United States to bolster their uh, subcapacity and to switch them over from diesel uh, subs to uh, to nuclear-powered subs. And that's to counter the uh, threat in the Indo-Pacific from China, right? You know, some of these problems, we create them for ourselves because we just it's just a poor job keeping up the fleet. And it's interesting you mentioned the subs because all we've ever heard about them is that they're moldy and the air quality is terrible and making the sailor sick. <laughs> not a good start with those vessels. But we do have to ramp up our need to have a presence in the north, for instance, because that's going to be a hotly contested body of water in the very near future. I guess it already is between us and Russia. So we've got to have 
modern equipment to keep our men and women safe and to and to patrol the waters that we need to see our vessels in. But, you know, when you hear $26 billion and all of a sudden it's $300 billion, it's a little bit misleading. But we have a procurement problem we always have. We do. It's the same with our Air Force with the F-35 uh, uh, contract or proposed contract. And, you know, it seems like this was in a, in a news cycle for about three or four months, maybe three or four years ago. Um, and, and now it's just uh, falling off the radar screen, and we don't hear anything on this. And this is another multi-billion dollar um, a program that if it's delayed, it just keeps adding on the cost. And we're coming out of a pandemic now and all the inflationary uh, pressures with, with the pandemic. So all, all these uh, all these multi-billion dollar uh, military uh, programs and, and projects, they're, they're going to be uh, into the inflationary cycle too, right? They are, and procurement should not be as politicized as it is. When it was Peter McKay talking F-35, of course, the other side of the house went haywire. Then when the roles were reversed, they just took the opposite sides of the songbook. It it's just, get, just gets a bit infuriating and a bit intellectually lazy from where I sit. Then the same people who will criticize procurement, of, especially when we're talking about the military, are the same people that are joining forces with the voices saying that we don't spend enough to live up to our NATO contribution. So which is it? You know, some of these things should be black and white, not the gray feature of politics and political rhetoric and hyperbole that dominates the conversation versus we need chips okay let's get them make sure that we do it as efficiently and as cost effectively as we can and move on with it you know but we just don't do that we played games with that f-35 and so 10 years or whatever years later we're going to pay more simply because we had a house of commons dance rigmarole versus a pragmatic adult approach to procurement yeah absolutely and I, with australia for example with their sub deal with they that they have with the british and the americans that ex that uh, that deal will draw the United States, the UK, and Australia into a closer intelligence alliance too, not only military, and that we will be left out of that because we don't have those subs. We cannot extend our sphere of influence in the in the uh, western or uh, uh, eastern or western Pacific. You know, if we're not there, we're depending on intelligence and military support from our allies, the the British, the Americans. The Australians and others, they're not going to do us any favors. They're looking after their own interests first. So we, can't, we cannot extend our sphere of influence in that region if we don't have the gear to do it. If we don't have the subs, we're dead in the water. It's good to be part of the G7. It would be great to be part of the G8. Yeah, really, you know, our northern border, uh, the Russians are up there, like you just said, with climate change now. Waterways are opening up. The Russians are up there. Uh, they're going to be up there, and they're going to, they're going to call our bluff. We're no different than Ukraine. That the, the guy who's in charge in the Kremlin, he, he looks at Ukraine no differently than he would look at us. If he thinks he can get an advantage by uh, by uh, causing uh, problems for for Canada on its northern border, he'll do it. He will challenge us and the Americans. And the Americans know that. The Australians know that. The British know that. Apparently, we don't know that. We got to put the money on the table. We got to get this, these deals done. And we got to streamline the processes. Every time this gets delayed, it just adds more money to the overall cost of these programs. And we get left out. If we're not at the table, we're going to be left out. We're going to be relying on our allies for, uh, for military 
uh, assistance. We're going to be relying on them for uh, the associated uh, intelligence too. Uh, just very quickly before, that, right? yeah, absolutely, very quickly before we have to go. So, if I remember correctly, with the fifteen Navy vessels uh, designed at Lockheed Martin, and did the contracts all go to Irving's, or was there another shipyard in Quebec got one as well? I can't remember. Uh, no, I, I can't recall. Yeah, I, I, sh- I should know what I'm talking about before I open my mouth. Appreciate the time, Colin. Thanks for this. Cheers. Bye bye. Take care. Bye now. All right, let's see here. It's uh, Canadian Patient Safety Week. Join us on line number two is Dr. Kathy Balsam and clinical pharmacist Jeremy McDonald from the MTS Clinic at Munn School of Pharmacy. Good morning to you both here on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. Good morning. Welcome back to the show to both you, Kathy, and Jeremy. Okay, Canadian Patient Safety Week. What role does pharmacy play in patient safety? And give us a, a definition of what we're actually talking about this morning. Yeah, so I guess this is, we're wrapping up Canadian Patient Safety Week today, so I thought we it would be a great opportunity to kind of just reinforce our message of how important it is to talk to your prescribers about your medications. Medications are one of the biggest impacts in somebody's kind of safety, whether or not they're on the correct medications for them, and perhaps they're even having any side effects and that sort of thing. So we certainly work with patients here at the clinic as pharmacists, and community pharmacists, hospital pharmacists, we're all playing a role, a major role in patient safety. And, of course, we're not talking about simply uh, a diagnosis and a prescription being written. It's about planning. You know, there's a care plan that has to be understood by the patient and the family and their health care providers. Yeah, uh, for sure, Patty. So the theme of Canadian Patient Safety this week is to ask questions, actively listen, and act to improve safety. And, and like you mentioned, you know, when, when you're looking at a, a new diagnosis and starting a new medication, what is your care plan? You know, if you're starting this medication, what's the time frame that you're expected to be on this? You know, a lot, a lot of times medications are started and, and sometimes we don't look at potential end dates for, for new medications. And, and that's always a, an important conversation to be having with your healthcare providers. This is not a unique situation here in this province, but nationwide, healthcare is bombarded. It's overwhelmed. And with overwhelmed systems and professionals working in the systems, the potential for unintended harm becomes a real major concern. How do we approach that? Because it's inevitable. We're talking about human beings and decision be- decisions being made by humans. Yeah, and I think, you know, we all certainly understand and can see what stress the healthcare system is under. And I think that might even encourage us to kind of take a back seat and, you know, not really use this as the time to engage with our healthcare providers. But I think there's really no better time than now because if we act proactively, we're hoping to prevent some events in the future. So having these conversations, like Jeremy said, what is the plan? Should I still be taking these things, you know, instead of just kind of waiting um, until for a better time when our healthcare system may not be under stress? Because I don't know when that's going to be happening, to be honest. So, you know, we want to really use this time and use any opportunities that you have to talk to your healthcare provider. And we really think that there's nothing more powerful than an empowered patient. So trying to encourage people to be really proactive in their health is really important at this time. And like Jeremy said, the whole purpose of this Patient Safety Week was to encourage those conversations. And they do say, you know, this is the time to to have these safety conversations. It's one thing to have the conversation with the patient and the family, but also amongst healthcare professionals themselves. Because when we have frustrated uh, professionals and they're overworked and they're burnt out and they're anxious and whatever other or the low morale maybe some health authorities what kind of conversation starts amongst you professionals to make sure Canadian patient safety is a key focus 
Um, yeah, so um, certainly collaborative care is a, a big topic of conversation these days, Patty, and there are a lot of collaborative team clinics opening up across across the province, especially here in, in St. John's. And, you know, you're, you're going to have nurse practitioners, pharmacists, dietitians, you know, occupational therapists kind of working together. And um, the great thing about these team approaches is, you know, everyone kind of has their own area of expertise and can offer insight on what would be the, you know, the best uh, treatment plan or best care plan for a patient. So it really allows for, you know, multiple minds to kind of brainstorm the best ideas and, of course, involving the patient and having them at the center of the care and, and making sure, you know, as you as an individual, what are your goals with your health care and making sure that we can you know, work together as a team to, uh, to achieve your, your health goals there. So what can the clinic do? Because not everyone will be a patient of you, Dr. Balsam, or our clinical pharmacist, Jeremy McDonald, maybe dealing with their own community pharmacist or their own doctor. But what role does the clinic play in these types of conversations? If someone who's listening this morning would like to reach out to the clinic, what kind of information can you give them or share or do with them? Yeah, absolutely. So we are, of course, a pharmacist clinic. So we sit down with our clients for about an hour or so. It is a service that there's no charge to the patient because we are associated with the School of Pharmacy and we have student learners along with us. So it's a learning opportunity for our students. And in that way, um, you know, certainly free to the to the patients. And we are not there to replace community pharmacists. You know, we are we operate, you know, as a, as a help to ev- everybody else. So anybody that comes to our clinic will provide recommendations and will work with their community pharmacist and will work with their prescribers. And really we're there to help. You know, like Jeremy said, the collaborative care is the goal and there are, there has been major advancements in collaboration in the province, but I think these safety conversations are, are to be had to say that there's more opportunity for collaborative care and for us to work together to help ease the, ease the stress on the healthcare system. So hopefully, um, you know, having these conversations even within our healthcare provider organizations is going to make a big difference in the future. Really appreciate you both making time for the program this morning and happy Canadian Patient Safety Week to you both. Stay in touch. Thank you. Take care, Patty. You too. Bye-bye. It's Dr. Kathy Balsam and pharmacist Jeremy McDonald from the MTS Clinic at Memorial University. That's the Medication Therapy Services Clinic. Let's take a break. Do not go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Bev Moore-Davis. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it. So um, as October is National Child Abuse Prevention Month, and I want to start by thanking you for allowing us to keep the conversation going. I know you've spoken with Connie Pike uh, throughout the month several times, and with the pro- Sorry, <clears throat> with the month uh, winding down, I wanted to call you today. And I want to start by saying that we know statistically one-third of Canadian adults report some form of child abuse. Now, today specifically, I want to talk about child sexual abuse. Um, we know that's a horrendous crime with lifelong consequences. And we also know that one in ten children will experience some form of sexual abuse. Nine out of those children will not report Even more alarming, Patty, um, 90% of the perpetrators are known to the family or the Mm -hmm. child. And again, 60% is somebody that the family knows and trusts. So with the news, we keep hearing about the increased rate of crime, addictions, mental health challenges. I thought it was a good time to chime in and talk about a body safety program that we have been advocating for since 2018. With my lived experience, I can confidently tell you the very root of child sexual abuse prevention is education. Um, So there is a program that has been developed through the Canadian Centre for Child Protection, 
And this particular program is called Kids in the Know, and basically it focuses on child abuse, online bullying, uh, sexual exploitation, and just the overall wellness of children. It checks all the boxes. This particular program has been used in Nova Scotia province-wide for 12 years and New Brunswick for over seven. It has been used throughout the country. We are one of few provinces that still don't have a body safety program. The uh, pilot project was um, it, well, they, you know, they did have a pilot project starting earlier this year, and it was deemed successful. However, um, we still don't have, you know, the next step, which is province-wide implementation. We, so how does the program work? Tell us about it. What are you suggesting we do insofar as education goes? So the program is age-appropriate, and it's available from kindergarten to grade 9. It builds on the foundation of the previous year of what children uh, are taught. It teaches children body safety. It teaches them about, you know, if something is inappropriate, they're taught what to do. They're taught about having a safety circle. So, you know, you talk to your children and, and you know, let's just say your son doesn't want to talk about something that's happening in school. But he already knows from a very early age that his, his safety circle includes, you know, four or five people outside if he doesn't want to talk to mom or dad. So those kind of things are already implemented at a young age. Another great threat that's coming on that I'm hearing more and more about um, is the online sexual exploitation. And I know Connie briefly talked about it with you um, in one of our conversations. So I, I'll just quickly tell you that in the end of August, I was contacted by a journalist from Ontario asking me to comment on a story um, about MindGeek, the uh, umbrella company for Pornhub, and, uh, you know, a case that's but right now FBI is investigating with you know, the, the alleged sharing of child sexual abuse material. So I did my homework on that before I agreed to, you know, comment. And, you know, the, the, there's a film, an image or, an, or a, um, a video being uploaded every two seconds. The child, Canadian Centre for Child Protection reported a 150% increase in reported, I'm sorry, sex torsion in the past six percent of the victims are uh, living at home when they're photographed or recorded. And, you know, 73% of the victims are girls aged 12 to 17. So I'm going to go back to, you know, education, education, education. There needs to be a greater sense of urgency. And, um, you know, we can't afford to wait another year. That's another round, another grade of children going through the system that are not educated. The Some of the concerns that I will hear repeatedly on things like this, whether it be uh, the program that you're describing or any type of sexual education is the whole concept of age appropriate. What I think people are kidding themselves a little bit about is that I think we give children too, uh, too little credit for how much they hear, how much they understand, where they get their information. If we're going to leave it too late, like if, for instance, if you say talk about this with the child is too young, it's too traumatizing, but isn't it too late if we leave it till after the fact when a young child has been abused and wasn't given some of the red flags to recognize, wasn't given some awareness, education? So we've got to just kind of relax here because if people think that, well, I'll deal with it when I think it's appropriate for my child, you might be too late because it's an uncomfortable conversation to have necessarily. And do we want them to learn about self-respect? and respect for others, and child abuse, and sexual awareness down by the river or in the schoolyard, or with people that are trained to deliver the curriculum properly and at an age-appropriate time, which I think is a bit lower than people give children credit for, because 
The concepts that we're talking about are everywhere. They're in their hand, in their phone. They're just so easily accessible, and even playground conversations are happening at a much more mature level than people think. It's not just plain ring around the rosy. They talk about real-life stuff, so let's give them some appropriate and uh, accurate information versus let their own peers tell them what's what. Patty, you're 100% right. The conversation is going to happen with or without you. And, you know, I, I often hear parents saying they're uncomfortable with the conversation. Well, just recently we've heard some stories in the news about young people who have been approached by a stranger in a vehicle. And, you know, I would, uh, I would call on parents to use that as an opening door to have that conversation. Ask the child, you know, what would you do if that situation happens? Like use it as an opportunity to educate children. The conversations are going to happen, so we need to ensure that they have the tools. Because, you know, for the parents that think that they're going to be around to protect their child, I'm going to tell you you're not. It's going to happen. I know parents who are, are you know, fantastic parents who, who who've spend a lot of time with their children. They're very into the day-to-day lives, and it still happens. It still happens. So, you know, let's not kid ourselves. We need to, you know, when, when I mentioned that statistic earlier, 60% it's, of the abusers is somebody that the family knows and trusts. And that's the trick. And that's the, the right way to approach these types of conversations, in my opinion, is, you know, if you saw something in the news and the so-called learning moment becomes available in your household, is that's the fundamental question. What would you do if? Paint scenarios. Don't lecture because then you get their reaction because then you get a better understanding of where they are, what they understand, what they don't understand, what they haven't even considered. So that's just a key way to speak to kids. I mean, it's not like I have a textbook written on it or anything. But if you find out more about where they are by asking them how they would react versus here's what you need to know. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, we've got teachers reaching out. I speak to community groups now, and people want their children to be educated. Their need, you know, this needs to be, uh, this, this program needs to be implemented province-wide, every classroom, every child, so that they have a greater chance of protecting themselves when we're not there to do it for them. Bev, really appreciate your time as usual. Thank you very much. Thank you, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. All right, Jad, talk to them where they are. What would you do if? Good stuff, uh, albeit a very difficult conversation, but once we have to have. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, you're in the queue. I can feel it. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Fogo Island Cape Friels. He's the Minister of Fisheries, Forestry and Agriculture. That's Derek Bragg. Good morning, Minister Bragg. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Happy to do it. I, I just wanted to call this morning. I want to uh, give a big shout-out to our farmers. La- last week I had the opportunity to be on a cranberry farm out in Stephenville, and it was uh, a, a bumper crop, or it appeared to be a bumper crop to me, and some of the cranberries there are as big as grapes. And uh, So that prompted me to think, like, uh, this is harvest season, and, and it's been a tough year on farmers. Let's not kid ourselves. It's been really dry in central and out west. Uh, I cost of fuel for and I cost on fertilizer. We have a couple of programs in which we help out: the Canadian Agriculture Program and our provincial program. But overall, these people, they are the boots on the ground. They work so hard every day to put food on our tables. And, I, and like, so I just want to say, like, for our part, I want to thank these people for what they do. Uh, and I guess the one thing that we did, and I got great, great reviews on, in Wooddale this year, we did 4,390,000 transplants. 
Now, that would be like turnip, cabbage, leek, onions, broccoli, cauliflower, asparagus, almost 20 different types of crops that we sell at, at I've got to say, at, a, at, a, at, a, at not a reduced price, but at, I guess, a cost price to the farmers. And they, they report back to us, and they get almost 100% success with that. Uh, and then and last week uh, I had a report, if you would have had a caller, and said we're not doing much in our potato production. I just want, I guess, to... Uh, to, to put an end to, to that myth, and, uh, and in Junction Brook, which is out on the West Coast, we're going to be close to a million pounds of potatoes this year. In Deadwater, the farmers there will do about 250,000 pounds of vegetables. And in the Glenwood area, is another one we did an RFP on, I talked to the farmer last evening, and he's anticipating around 350,000 pounds of potatoes. So overall, I mean, it's been a, a tough year, but I, I'm getting good success from the, from the farmers overall. There was a recent proposal for a potato farm. Some 500 acres had been cleared. I think it was 500 out of the 64,000 hectares of land that the province put forward for agricultural purposes. A caller last week asked about the status of it. I remember the proposal when it was first put in. Can you give us an update on that one particular farm, that 500 acres? So I'm, I'm anticipating that will be the Junction Brook. That's the one out near Deer Lake. It's just, I think so. Uh, it's about 15 minutes, maybe, this side of Deer Lake. And, and they're reporting, the farmers are reporting, they're going to, they're going to harvest uh, around a million pounds of potatoes this year. So, and you got to realize, out of all that, only one-third, because it's a three-year rotation, so only one-third of that fuel will be used for potatoes at any given time because you can't – PEI does it, but, but, do it, but they do it with a lot of, I guess, a lot of herbicides, pesticides, and fertilizers. But here our farmers, they want to do a three-year three crop rotation, so approximately one-third of that fuel will be dedicated for potatoes in any given year. So it is proceeding as proposed? Oh, my God, yes. It's, well, actually, I had the opportunity of last fall – so they get a return out there, what I saw. I talked to Louie, who, who runs the farm out there. They put in one seed potato, and they take back 10 potatoes from that one seed potato. That is, that is a great return for what they put in there. I didn't get the opportunity to go out yesterday because they, they had most of the field harvested, and they weren't there when I drove back across the island. But they are very pleased with the quantity and the quality of that field. Uh, and, you know, I know some of these things are municipal, but leadership coming from the province and the minister responsible is important. There's a lot of confusion and a lot of restrictions being placed on residents in various communities about the want to grow. Backyard farming, homesteading, community gardens, the, we should be doing so much more. Can you give us some comment as the minister responsible for, the, for agriculture about just how many restrictions we're seeing being placed on residents in small towns who simply want to help control the blow-up uh, costs inside a grocery store by producing some of their own? So to me, it's like you can't promote that enough. We have a program. We give seven hundred and fifty dollars to every community farm out there. So that would, and that that is, I think, it's a hundred thousand dollars. We give seven hundred and fifty to each uh, community garden, and that is a hundred, or that's distributed throughout this province. That would be mostly in, or if not all, within incorporated municipalities. So we're we're doing our part to promote it. I know a lot of people. I myself this year. We we and I don't know if you're familiar with the the trays that you would put like crab or fish in. We had six of these in potato this year alone. Me and my myself, my uncle. So it's a it's a big promotion. You drive around this province, you'll see a lot of backyard 
people. Only in Clarenville last week you would have saw a person with maybe the largest pumpkin ever growing in this province. So it's out there. We're promoting it where we can. I'm hoping to get into M&L next week, but if I do get an opportunity, I will promote with the municipalities in there to to help those guys promote backyard farming where and where possible. And I don't want to promote it in such a way that the neighbors are upset over the, the smell that might come from it because traditionally in, in rural Newfoundland, People have been organic farmers for years before we knew what an organic farmer was. We use things like kelp and capelin to, for, rather than, than anything else. And that came with a smell, to be honest, most years if it wasn't covered properly. Maybe that's causing some of the problem. I know some places people have chickens, uh, people have their own turkeys and that sort of thing. And I guess another thing I forgot to mention, we produce over 11 million dozen eggs a year in this province, so we're, we're self-sufficient there. We're self-sufficient in our chicken supply and in our milk supply. So we're making great inroads, and a lot of these farms are in municipal boundaries. The province was talking about doubling food production. I think it was by 2025, if I remember correctly, when we first heard about that quest to double food production. We're nowhere near it. And so, so, like, I'm sorry? I disagree with that, Patty, to be honest. Well, we're not, though. to reach at, at 20%, and this year, when the number is in, if we don't exceed that 20 target, 20% target, we will be close to it. So we are making leaps and bounds in, in what we're doing there. We're opening up, as, we, as you said earlier, three different firms last year. So we're doing our part. We're promoting it. But, but I do have a concern. A lot of the firms I go on, it's a lot of, of, a lot of older farmers. We need to get young people in this industry. We need to get it in our classrooms. It needs to be in the curriculum. We need to get people out for, for uh, I guess, uh, for, for school, school tours or school, school, school outings. They should go and see the value of farming because, you know what, I haven't met a farmer yet that it hasn't extended the ran, albeit they go to wipe the ran off, and I said, don't be so crazy. They put the ran out, and they got a big handshake and a big smile on every farm I've, I've been on for the last year or so. Let's talk fishery for a second. So the, the report was released called a review of foreign investment in the Newfoundland and Labrador fishery. The FFAW takes exception to this report, saying things like it doesn't talk about the true implication of foreign ownership. You know, pointing to Royal Greenland, who have done some important things and made some investments here in the province, but they are foreign-owned, and we don't know what the outcomes will be. Mr. Uh, Mr. Sullivan at the FFAW says it's... Well, let me see if I can read it properly. He says it's a farce for government to pretend everything is above board. He says improvements cannot be made without acknowledging a problem exists. And that would be a handful of large companies gobbling up the smaller companies. Your comment or the comment from the report says, The province's experience with foreign investment is historically positive, indicating that Royal Greenland made beneficial uh, contributions to the competitiveness and productivity of the sector through investment in upgrades to plants provided longer-term meaningful work. But that's big companies and a vast majority, a big percentage of the process sector for sure is in the handful of the big companies versus the widespread smaller companies that w- once was the feature of the province so he says you're not dealing with the true implications your reaction so my reaction that i understand from mr sullivan's point where he has to come from on all this and 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 this report probably doesn't hit the mark on what they were looking for but if you look at foreign investment in natural resources let's look at our offshore oil industry let's look at our mining let's look at the wind generation that is that is a substantial amount of, of foreign investment. And they're fishy right now. And I challenged Mr. Sullivan to come forward with a complaint of where Royal Greenland has been bad. You talk to the people in Sanatini. You talk to the people in the areas where these plants are and the employment they're getting. I'm not getting anything. And I, I, don't, I haven't seen an email. I haven't had a phone call of anything negative that came out of the Royal Greenland. 
competitiveness is another another situation. Like we need, we don't need uh, a, a sort of one company owning all the province. But let's let's look at the, the, the smaller people. How many how many people would come forward over the last twenty years? I would say that that wanted to start a small fish plant, and that number is really really minute. We are fortunate this year that we had strong LT companies to get us through the crisis that we went through in the crab, and we're going through right now. There's still an abundance of crab lifting stories that is yet to be sold. So if we had small companies, we might see a lot of companies that may have been, may have, may have went belly up by this point, but we're not hearing any of that. That's because we have strong people in this industry, and, and the way it's set up, we have a great we have a great cross-reference of smaller to larger fishing plants across the province. The concern would be that at the processing licensing board, given the approval for Royal Greenland's most recent purchases, what's the threshold? Where's the breaking point for percentage of ownership from large companies, especially if they're not Canadian-based or Newfoundland or Labrador-based? So do we have a number in mind where we've reached a point where we can't do these things any longer? Because the worry will be, what happens if Royal Greenland wants to service their own uh, industry in Denmark or in Greenland versus some of the buying that could indeed be done and the processing that could indeed be done here. So where's the percentage breaking point where foreign ownership becomes a problem? So right now we are doing our own internal review of that, where our threshold should lie, where our should, threshold should lie when it comes to offering up new licenses or transfer of licenses. We will always go to the competitive board of Canada when it comes to too many, too many licenses being bought up by one company. We don't want, we never want to get our province in a situation where one company controls the old fishery. We don't want to be there. There's no way we're going to go down that road. And we'll make everything that we can, make all avenues that that doesn't happen. Because you do need a competitive market and you need competitive fish plants out there. Some may say that the price is already negotiated, but we don't need just to negotiate with one company. We need multiple companies at the table. Appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Put me on. Take care. You have a great weekend. You too. As uh, Minister Derek Bragg, Fisheries, Forestry, and Agriculture. Let's take a break. When we come back, there's a caller in the queue to talk about estate sales, and then we'll be speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hello there. Oh, hi, Patty. Thank you so much for taking my call. My pleasure. Um, I'm having an estate sale, and I have a collection of silver. I was wondering if you or your listening audience would know uh, where I can bring this to sell or for someone to have a look at. Uh, I am coming to St. John's in November, so um, if that will help. So I was just wondering if you might be able to help me. So are you looking for an auction house or something? I'm not really I'm not really sure, but I do have some pieces like for example cutlery, serving dishes, and I'm just wondering because there's not much interest shown uh here for that. Uh, but I understand there probably are some places in St. John's that wouldn't mind having a look. Um I just you know, I don't know where to go with this, and I'm hoping maybe somebody might point me in the right direction. Hmm. Well, I mean, if you're looking for a wide reach and for someone to maybe try to max out the value by auctioning, auctioning off the items as opposed to simply a secondhand resale store, maybe an auction house is a good place to start to see if they fit the bill for you. How's that sound? Mm, yeah, that, that would be okay, but I'm also looking for a quick sell. 
um, because I am donating the proceeds of the um, auction. So, um, you know, I, I really don't know where to go. Or, like, any phone numbers or names um, I would appreciate, you know. Yeah, I, I'm not sure off the top of my head. I can think of a good place for a quick sell of silverware or ster- sterling silver flatware. And the serving tray, I think, is what you also uh, mentioned there. Have you put it on the notable sites like the Kijiji's and buy and sell, those types of things, that people are really go to those sites all the time? Have you tried that outlet? Uh, no, I haven't. That's, that's an idea for sure. Uh, but I didn't know if there were, like, specific places like in St. John's, that would um, I could take it to, like you said, to to resell, you know, other than an auction place. I know a place that buys and sells gold, but I'm not sure. I know one that buys and sells silver. To be honest with you, but right off the bat, before you even make your way to St. John's, I would put your items on Kijiji and the buy and sell websites because they're super popular. People go to them all the time, so do that much. And a number to resell silver here. Boy, oh, boy. Oh, come on now, Twitter listeners. Anyone got an idea where we can point this particular lady? I'll tell you what I will do for you, caller, is during one of the upcoming breaks, I'll see if some of the people I know in the resale world can give me some advice on this. And when myself or Dave Williams have a minute, we'll call you back. But do indeed put it online because there's nothing better for reach than the online services. So try Kijiji and Newfoundland Buy and Sell. Do those too, and I'll see if I can get your number to speak with someone directly who might be able to do a quick purchase. How's that? Oh, that would be wonderful. I really appreciate it. Can I leave my number? Absolutely. Go right ahead. Okay, it's 674-5376. Okay. Silver for sale. I don't know what I'm going to put on that note. Yes. On that number. Okay, 674-5376. So try the online options, and I'll see if I can get you someone to speak to who might be in the business of buying and selling silver. Oh, great. Thank you so much. I appreciate your help. You're welcome. Now, also, stay tuned because inevitably someone's going to send me an email with a suggestion. When I get it, I'll say it out live over the air so you'll hear it here before I even get a chance to call you back. Oh, I'm going to have you on all morning till you're finished. There you go. Appreciate this. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. Bye now. Bye-bye. So the phone's lit up there pretty quick. I guarantee there's someone in there who's in the selling and buying a silver. Line number one, Len, you're on the air. Good morning, buddy. Morning to you. I uh, just want to uh, share a little experience I had with the hospital. Okay. Stay last week at the health science complex. Mm-hmm. I had uh, surgery, major surgery on my back back a few years ago, and I've been having trouble on and off ever since. But anyway, to come to the point that I couldn't walk for for five days home in the in the house, and finally had to get a an ambulance a week ago Sunday. With pain, I couldn't take it no longer. I couldn't walk or couldn't do anything. So I got taken into the science complex. Uh, you know, the situation with the healthcare now, there's no room for anything whatsoever. But uh, after spending an hour, got triaged or whatever it was, and then put out in a quarter. Uh, from that, I was brought into one of the emergency makeshift rooms that they have there, whatever. Told the doctor my situation. Whatever, and just looked at me and had a little chat or whatever it was, and uh, didn't have anything done for the rest of the while, for quite a while, other than that uh, I heard the doctor out in the quarter talking to the nurse they wanted to see him about me getting something for the pain. I wanted to know, because he had said he was go- I was going to be admitted. But anyway, all of a sudden, 
uh, something changed and I wasn't going to get admitted at all. And I heard him telling the nurses to send that man in their home. There's nothing wrong with him. Only he's having um, chronic pain. Uh, that set my blood boiling quite a bit, I can tell you that, because I still couldn't walk, couldn't do anything, and the pain, pain was unbearable at times. So, But anyway, I happened to mention that uh, I might have to give up a line of call just to let them know what's going on here. And uh, too, not too long after that, I got taken and brought down for x-rays. Now, x-rays don't show anything in regards to disc being out or whatsoever, because that's what was happening twice before. Uh, a couple of discs were popping out, and where I had had a fusion, uh, there was a part of the fusion after coming loose and breaking off, and I'm assuming that's what was happening again. But uh, if you don't have an MRI or a CAT scan on your spine, it doesn't show up uh, disc being out or whatever. But anyway, I had a four-day stay. There, while while there, I uh, got lots of medication, lots of uh, pain medications and pills or whatever. Uh, the nurses were extremely, extremely good. I had to throw out a bouquet to all of them, and in particular, a girl by the name of Nikki Nikita. But anyway, I got taken down for X-rays, and uh, through the misery of having all that done, taken back and put in the quarter again as usual. And I have been moved seven times from the quarter to one of the, these makeshift emergency rooms. Uh, in, in the last night I was in there, I guess, and day and night or whatever it was, it was the seventh move that I had done. Still nothing done in regards to the rest of my back, but all of a sudden I didn't know anything until I was told I was going home. I'm glad you called, but I'm I'm sorry that you're feeling so poorly. So, just so I understand, you were told you were being admitted just to then eavesdrop over here that you were not being admitted and being sent home? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And four days in one of those makeshift rooms, which is really an emergency room, uh, a emergency room piece of ground, but apparently there's so many people in storage closets, hallways, emergency rooms for days on end, waiting for a hospital bed, and some of them, of course, like you, get sent home. Exactly. Exactly. But i tell you what, now. I didn't get sent home until Wednesday, and uh, when the nurse came in to tell, you know, with a bunch of papers, said, what's going on now? She said, you're going to be sent home. And I said, well, very good. You know, I was kind of glad to get out of the situation I was in, Patty, because you're put out in the corridor. I was put in the corridor for quite a lot of times, you know, with the traffic going back and forth and people arguing and singing out and all that stuff, and when you're in misery. But anyway, I asked for my discharge papers. When I was, was being sent home, and the nurse looked at me, she said, there's no discharge papers for you. And I said, why not? She because you were never admitted. I said, very good. After being in here for, for four days, mm-hmm. five days, whatever it was, not to get admitted. Uh, anyway, I said, I have to take it and get home out of it, and that's all I can do about it, you know. But the situation in there is unbelievable. I mean, I don't know how they're going to handle it if anything gets any worse than what it is. Because there's all kinds of patients coming in there from drug addicts to whatever, you know, and you have to put up with, with listening to them blowing their minds sometimes, and you know. But but the service from the nurses was, was outstanding. I have to say that, buddy. I have to give them a bouquet for that. But. Well, it's but good that you got the appro- it's good you got appropriate treatment from the nurses, but it's terrible that, you know, what kind of loophole are we climbing through here when someone spends four full days in a hospital but has never been considered admitted? So then, consequently, you don't get documents to speak to the reality. So 
takes away a lot of liability too for down the road for whether it be chronic pain or there something gets the symptoms get worse and whatever the case may be. So that's a that's a tight little uh, loophole they jump through there. I'm telling you, you know, it's, it's almost unbelievable that, that that kind of a thing would happen. But I'm living proof of it now. You know, I know I've been in there quite often, whatever. But uh, you know, when you're getting in the pain situation like that, and, uh, and without a doctor looking at you at all, only looking at you, and, and making a prediction there was nothing wrong with a chronic pain. And I've I've had this problem with my back going back since it, the, in the eighties. Okay, I had uh, three surgeries on the lower back with a double fusion. You know, and that every now and then acts up, whatever it is, the disc pop, pops out. Or, you know, I was three and a half months in bed there uh, three years ago, and three and a half months in bed two years ago again with the same thing. You know, and at that time, MRI showed that the two discs were had protruded out. Uh, below the one that I had already done already to stick to me down. So, you know, and I'm assuming it was the same thing because the pain was radiating from my back, down my thigh, down my shin. To You know, I couldn't do nothing. I spent a lot of time, I'm going to tell you, crying with pain. And if not for my wife here at home, I don't know what I would have done, you know. And and to get in the hospital, the, 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 the paramedics, they came to get me, had a job to get me out of the bed, as a matter of fact. If I didn't have a, a stair climber, I don't know if I'd have got downstairs. But anyway, I got in there, and that was my stay. And uh, I'm recovering now since I got home, and I guess it's from medications and whatever, you know, the pain medications have uh, slowed things down for me. Recovering well, some up, but I get around the house with a wheelchair, you know, because I, the, the leg was so bad, and it was off from walking. I had no exercise for the longest while, so. It's taking a bit of a while for that to recover. Well, I hope you are on the mend, and I appreciate you making time for the show, Len. Take, or, you uh, take much, care of yourself. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, very quickly, a uh, big thanks to the listeners uh, who are always there to fill in a few blanks when I don't have an answer, including where to sell my silver. So for the caller who called about it, we've been directed by many people and including this company, and I should have remembered these folks because they, are, they operate very close by where I live. East Coast Coins and Collectibles here in the city of St. John. So, caller, get a pen and paper ready because you're going to write down the contact number for East Coast Coins and Collectibles. It is by appointment only, so you're going to have to give them a shout at 579-2646. So, East Coast Coins and Collectibles at 579-2646. Appreciate that. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about nurses again. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Andrea, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing very well, thanks. How about you? Uh, pretty good, pretty good. Um, actually, it's my first time calling, and uh, it came to the point I had no choice. Uh, back in February, my dad was admitted to hospital, went by ambulance four times with a UTI. They sent him back. Um, the last time he went in, uh, we looked after him home. Uh, by the time we got him back, everything had shut down. The doctor told me he was dying. Thank goodness he didn't. So anyway, uh, the past couple of days, he had to go back into the health science. He wanted to go to St. Clair's because we find the service and uh, the the way the nurses are 
ever a lot nicer. But I must say, the health signs, I mean, I know it's, they're talking about the nurses and nurses and nurses, but um, sometimes the public doesn't always see uh, what really happens behind closed doors. Uh, my father had to go in again last night and the night before. He waited nine hours in the corridor on the gurney uh, to be sent home again. Last night he went in again. They took him off the stretcher. Uh, they put him in a wheelchair and they put him out in with the rest of the patients. Not apparently the place was on wheels. So by the time he got home, he said to the girl, because now because of the mistake they made in February, my dad has a permanent catheter uh, because his kidney shut down, blood are shut down. So the only way that he can survive is with this catheter. So he said to the girl last night, the nurse, she said, um, can, we said, can I dump this? And she said, no, you can't dump this. Bring it home and get a dump. Like, I know they're frustrated, but they can't be abusive and nasty to the patients because they're not going to get support from the public. Back in June, my mom went in with a UTI. The day before that, she was fine. She spent four days in the corridor in a wheelchair. She's 90. Then she spent another four days in another cold, dingy old COVID room where she went downhill. She died a few weeks later because of the care she didn't receive. So you always hear everything about the nurses and nurses and nurses. Like, do the public really realize what happens behind closed doors in these hospitals? The last time my dad was in, he went to St. Clair's. Now, I've got to give the girls, like, uh, 100 plus because they were sweet. They're all kind-hearted. They were really nice. They were good to my dad. But I find that the nurses at the health science and even this, I mean, I know there's people coming in. I know there's accidents and there's a lot of things do happen while other people are there waiting. But when you've got a 91-year-old man coming in with a black catheter, spending nine hours sitting in a wheelchair, taken off the gurney from an ambulance and put it with the rest of the patients out in the waiting room. So, I mean, it doesn't matter what what color the government is going to be. Um, you can't fix shattered. So sad to hear all this. And I'm sorry to hear it. Um, everyone's experience is different, isn't it? Because we just yeah. had Len Call, who was saying nothing but good things about the way the nurses treated yeah. him. And yeah. then we'll hear different stories. And I know you're making the point that we understand the frustration and overworked and burnt out and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, but the big but here is Bedside manner is never, a good positive bedside manner is never an option based on how you feel. Because, you what, I mean, my mother was a nurse, so nurses, as much as they might be stressed out, is I'm sure the vast majority of them on their way into the office or the clinic remind themselves that the folks in there who are more stressed out than they are, are the people, the family, and the individuals who are sick. And their worry is real. And any time you encounter someone who's rude or aggressive or dismissive, it just amplifies people's individual worries about their own health or the health of their loved one who's on a gurney or in a hospital bed. So let's make sure, and just the reminder to those folks who we respect what you do and we know you're tired, but you've got to consider who's on the receiving end of your frustration sometimes. Let the yeah, frustration yeah, be with the health authority, yeah. not with patients. Right, but I mean, I watched my mother die That's unbelievable. In, in, the, in the corridor for four days at the Health Science Complex in a wheelchair, just left. Nobody looking after her. Thank God we hired a private nurse to, to stay their days with her because all her family worked. But I mean, we were there at night and weekends. And I mean, she went downhill like 
uh, something I've never seen. It was the worst thing I've ever went through in my life to watch my mother die without care in a wheelchair for four days. Then he put her in another room and die. And she died. And I mean, my father could have died when they sent him home in in June um, in February when they misdiagnosed him as well when everything is, it was shut down on him. And that's why he's got a permanent catheter. And he goes in now because the catheter gets blocked or something happens to him. And then he spends nine hours in a wheelchair, sat down with the rest of the patients. And the nurses just pass you and say, "Yeah, there's something else. You know, you're, you'll be in soon. You'll be in soon. You'll be in soon." And they get nasty and really rude. And I'm going. Like, seriously, if, if you don't want to be a nurse, don't be. But if you got this profession that you wanted to be a nurse, you've got to be a certain type of person to be a nurse. You can't be nasty to these people who are in pain, and you don't understand what they're going through, the family's going through. I mean, nobody had understand what we went through. My dad, he was dying, and to watch my mother die in the corridor of a hospital where we thought she'd get care. And she died. <laughs> Oh boy. So, I, like I said, this is my first time on open line. I had no choice. I had to bring this to light. I wanted public to know what is really happening. Um, it took me days to try to get my, my uh, get this up to get it out to people that. Um, it's not always like what you really see. And I mean, I know the nurses are worked. I can totally understand. But you've got to have some kind of compassion when you get somebody there, you know, who's dying and you're just leaving them there to die because they say, oh, you're 90, you're going to die anyway. That's not the way to look at it. It doesn't matter if you're nine months, nine years old or 90, you're still a person. So you've got to look after these people. So, I mean, if the nurses want the public's um, help and to back them up, They've got to be more sympathetic. They've got to help us help them. Have you followed up with the hospital or the health authority itself? I know that it won't bring anybody back, but just in an effort to have people in the know about your experience, your family's experience, have you followed up with the health authority? I did, but it doesn't. It, it falls on deaf ears, so um, I think I'm going to do it again. If not, I'm going to go. Um, go, well, I mean, I, I was going to go to the media, but this is better than the media because everybody listens to Open Line. And, I mean, I listen to Open Line to see what's happening. But um, I know Friday's, like, was free for all you to say. So everybody listens to what other people need to say. So I figured, well, this would be the best time for let let people know what what, what happened to my parents and what happened to my poor mom. My deepest condolences. Thank you. Take care, Andrew. Stay in touch. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. <clears throat> Man. Yeah, it's difficult to segue out of such difficult, traumatic conversations. And everybody, I think, is unfortunately and painfully aware that there is a crisis in the system. We take great credit and pat ourselves on the back as Canadians with universal health care. But the way the system is intended to work is not working. And I don't think it's going too far to say that the stories have piled up to the point where it's just broken. I know we've got a lot of important work being done in this province for the transition to what health care should look like, to make it more effective, make it more accessible. That is a transition that will take upwards of a decade, and that work I'm referring to, of course, is the health accord. 
but the immediacy. You know, I know government has done things, you know, incentives that have been dangled for expats to come home and for recruitment and retention and for moving casual nurses to the permanent full-time and all these types of things, establishment of collaborative care clinics. We are talking about humans delivering inside the healthcare system, but those stories are just absolutely heartbreaking. Let's take a break. When we come back, have a look around the house, out in the garage, down in the basement, out in the storage room for any gently used hockey equipment that you may have kicking around your house for children ages 5 to 15. We're looking for them at the Avalon Celtics. We're going to talk to the recreational VP at the Avalon Celtics Minor Hockey Association, Tracy Hawley, right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. You know the old saying, if you want to get something done, give that duty to someone who is busy. Join us on line number what? Line number two is the Vice President of Recreational Hockey at the Avalon Celtics Minor Hockey Association. That's Tracy Haley. Good morning, Tracy. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Couldn't be better. How about you? Oh, doing fabulous. Uh, I'm calling this morning to let the community uh, be aware that we're doing a new Canadian hockey initiative at the Avalon Celtics Minor Hockey Association this weekend. Um, we're hosting an equipment drive in support of new Canadians that are looking to play minor hockey, learn how to skate, that sort of thing. Uh, Specifically, we're doing this in support of our uh, new Ukrainian families that have recently come to Newfoundland, as well as our Syrian families, which we also have uh, involved with our association. Mm -hmm. So um, right now, the Avalon uh, Celtics minor hockey has more than a dozen players from Syria, We have eight players from Ukraine that are playing in our uh, club league as well as our house league team, uh, as well, sorry, as our all-star teams. And as of this week, we're looking to welcome 16 new Ukrainian families uh, to learn how to skate. They age from uh, five to about 15. And we are looking to call to the community for anyone who has any gently used hockey equipment, if they would like to drop it off at our rink on Saturday between 10 and 5, 10 a.m. and 5 p.m., and Sunday in the morning from 9 to 11 or in the afternoon from 2 to 5, we would gladly get that equipment into the hands of the families in need. Uh, so it, we are calling to our own members of the Avalon Celtics Minor Hockey Association, but also we'd like to call to the members of our community, corporate, individual, anyone that would like to help with this initiative. Uh, we can gladly take all the help we can get to get these kids into some normal activities and to get them to learn the great Canadian game. To see the children's faces when they get their first uh, exposure to our club and our rink and their newfound friends on the ice is brilliant. It absolutely is. And I know a lot of discussion between yourself and Mark Sexton, talk about busy people, Uh, yourself and Mark and Justin Clark, who's our new executive director. You know, making these programs work is making a big difference in the community. So even if you're a company and you don't have a company storage room full of old hockey gear, If you want to learn more about it, maybe get involved yourself, you can contact me, contact Tracy. Easy enough to reach me, and I can put you in touch with the right people. But let's make sure this is a big success because these new young hockey players, one of them might be the next new hook, one of them might be the next me who just simply enjoyed the game of ice hockey and all the friends we made doing exactly that. So this is great stuff. Talk about the conversations and relationship that you're establishing with the Association for New Canadians. 
Uh, it's it's fabulous. We like I said, we have more than a dozen Syrian kids that skate with us right now. Um, the relationship with these families is astronomical. I mean, they they showed up at our association just a few years ago. Uh, we have a couple of parents that are currently working on the bench. Uh, they're opening the gate. When they arrived just a couple years ago, they didn't speak a word of English. Uh, now they can tell you when a play is offside. They can, uh, you know, tell it, tell you any part of the game. Uh, they're loving it. Uh, they come to me on a regular basis or they email or text me and uh, just let me know how life-changing this has been for their children. So uh, for me as a volunteer with the Hockey Association, there are no greater words. Uh, you know, this is what we strive to to achieve, and I feel as though we are doing it. And our kids, our local kids, are learning tremendous um, respect and all new experiences from having this, these new children come in to teach them things that they never even knew, different religions, different languages, you know, and it just, it makes our community a better place. Everything that can be done, and I know so many volunteers working in different minor sports across the province, but we're doing what we can to increase accessibility, uh, reduce costs, all those types of things, but some of that we really need some community support, and not just if you're a member or former member of the Avalon Celtics uh, Minor Hockey Association, anybody. Your kids play for the Caps or did play for the Caps or down in Northeast or out in Paradise. If you'd like to put that gear to good use, please do indeed drop by the D.F. Barnes Arena on Pennywell Road. Saturday between 10 and 5. Sunday you can do from 9 to 11. I think you said also 2 to 5 on Sunday. Two to five as well. And just a note, Patty, as well, uh, if equipment is not something that you have easily on hand, uh, we also take monetary donations. We will take any donations that can help to get these kids on the ice uh, in support of programming. You know, we have coaches that will be getting on the ice, uh, Ukrainian coaches that will be getting on the ice. Again, these, these families came to Newfoundland with absolutely nothing uh they're currently living in hotels they you know they need all the help they can get and we will greatly accept that on their behalf so if it's not equipment if there is donations that are available um you can contact like you said yourself patty or myself mark sexton anyone at the executive level of avalon minor hockey and we will put you in the right direction and put your money or your equipment to use and for any surplus gear that comes in the door there's a gear library so that's for any celtic hockey player doesn't matter if you're from syria or from ukraine or from pennywell road if we've got extra gear kicking around so any surplus that come in the door i guarantee you we will find a young hockey player to support your donation uh this particular weekend good to have you on tracy we'll see you tomorrow thank you so much take care bye-bye yeah. Bye. tracy haley she's the vp of recreational hockey for the Celtics, C C C E L L L L T I I I I C S. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go. Take a break. Join us weekdays from twelve thirty to one p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number six. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Burgio Lapoil. He's also the Minister of Industry, Energy, and Technology. But let's talk a little bit of constituency stuff with Andrew Parsons, Minister Parsons. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you today? Doing fine, thanks. How about you? 
Good. I appreciate you getting me on this morning because uh, it's basically a chance for me to uh, really talk up this event that's coming on Sunday. I know a lot of people have already been on talking about it, but it's it's going to be an amazing event. And if you're, I, I don't know if we can find a better cause right now. And that's with the, the We Stand on Guard Again concert on Sunday night and just trying to spread the word far and wide uh, and hope as many people tune in and more importantly, as many people donate as possible. It was good to see the extension granted by the government to include this concert because we could be talking about upwards of a half million dollars being raised. And so that's a whopping big sum to be matched eventually. So that's a good thing. But what are we seeing on the ground, Minister Parsons? Because we talk with Mayor Button every now and then on the show. You know, it's a, a nice positive news story when we see that the Leafs sent along some gear and Smokey's going to get a jersey and all that stuff. But what are we seeing on the ground? Because the devastation, the, re- the recovery from this is going to be one oh. thing on the bricks and mortar, quite another on the yeah. mental state of the folks in the, in the area. Well, absolutely. And there's just so many different components to it. I mean, even when you're out there, there's a, a difference when you're there going around. It's still so heavy and it weighs on you. And, and I know it's weighing on everybody's mind, even... If you weren't affected, I know it's weighed on people's mental state. You feel some of the survivor guilt. And then you take the individuals who I, I know have had a, a really tough time. I've had friends I'm talking to and uh, just trying to transition and figure out what's next. And then, you know, sort of flashbacks that they're going through. Uh, in terms of the physical structure side of things, look, it, it's moving. It's moving along right now. It's about trying to figure out temporary arrangements for people. So we have transitioned to that uh, getting people out of hotels into, you know, what's your accommodation going to be for the next three, four, five months? Because the other side of this is that the permanent rebuild, when we restructure houses and move into uh, you know, a new neighborhood, that obviously is it's hard to do a lot of that during the winter. Uh, but there's a lot of different things moving. They are moving in the right direction. Uh, some of it not as fast as people would like to see, even trying to get the money, uh, you know, through the Red Cross into people's hands. Like, it requires some validation. I mean, the other side of this is that whenever dollars are being used, we, we need to have a process that's accountable for later on so we can check and ensure that every dollar that's being spent is going to the right people at the right time, the right effort. Um, but you know what? The volunteers that are working on it have been fantastic. Uh, and again, like I say, it, it, we're getting there, but it is, as you say, it's going to be long. Uh, it's going to be significant. And there are still more pieces to be figured out as we move into this next stage. Just some, some idea what you're talking about there with other pieces that need to be figured out. Well, so right now it's basically been the immediate thing where you know people were going into temporary housing such as friends and family and hotels. Then we move into the temporary, which is how do we get through the winter? Then there's the long term. Uh, part of that is figuring out the I guess the compensation side of things that'll come from government. That requires an assessment, and that's being done now. There are adjusters out there going through things with people, uh, trying to explain to people the process we're going to use and figure out what is that going to look like, insurance or no insurance. That's That's been eliminated as an issue. Then, you know, you look at it from a municipality point of view. Now, most communities have had fewer houses, so I think they can figure it out. But when you look at the range of houses just in Port of Ask that have been gone, it's going to require a lot of work from a municipality point of view in terms of, okay, we need to work on this subdivision now. With that comes the water and sewer. How do we figure out the land size? What is the new structure going to look? There's a huge list logistical side. Uh, you know, then there's people dealing with their banks. I mean, part of the compensation that comes is we have to deal with existing mortgages. What does a new mortgage look like? Uh, even little things. It's, it's, it sounds small, but it means a lot when you have a pre-existing mortgage going to a new one. What's the interest rate? 
on that. And we're trying our best to help everybody through every... I think the overall goal is to try to help people get to as close as what they were before, but in many cases that's going to be difficult. How's the province approaching the folks who didn't have insurance or storm surge was not covered with their policy? Are we building back what they had, or are we using appraised value? Because, unfortunately, these are two different things. Absolutely. So the first thing was telling everybody, look, you know, we, we have to treat this as a, in a humanitarian way where, you know, look, insurance versus no insurance. The reality is most people it didn't matter. There's no coverage. So we're working with everybody on that to put them hopefully in a position of where they were. Uh, using some insurance philosophies in terms of trying to figure out, you know, what was your loss and knowing at the same time that, look, an assessment value is not going to cut it. That's not going to put you anywhere near where you were at all. Uh, so we have to look at it from a replacement value point of view. And each case is individual. There's a huge discrepancy uh, between, uh, you know, one end to the other in terms of variance in terms of housing sizes, housing uh, values, family compositions. And then there's dealing with people. Look, you've had some people that may have been in that house for decades and decades. Why would you rebuild the same thing if there might be a more cost-efficient? Some of these people may not want to build the same size house. They may want to go into something smaller that suits their, their current needs. So we are looking at it on an individual basis, uh, but I don't think there's anyone out there now, nor should they be worried about can they afford this? The province has said, we have said, look, we will be there to help you get through. But that doesn't mean that you don't have a structured process to help guide you so that, you know, as good as you want to be, you end up with a mess and every, and nobody being satisfied or, or pleased with the process. So that's your member's hat. Let's move off to your ministerial hat for a quick moment before we run out of time here. Last time we talked about wind. And in particular, the concerns regarding World Energy GH2, even though there's some 31 wind-related proposals on your desk. Well, let's talk mining for a second. I was encouraged to see that there was a successful industry showcase on Placentia. They maxed out the uh, people presenting. People seem to be bullish in the area, but in mining. We're the only country, democratic country, on the face of the earth with every single component regarding the construction of an electric vehicle and its battery. When the federal government talked about it and used those words, they talked about northern Ontario and northern Quebec, when in fact the opportunities are massive in Labrador in particular here. So what sort of proactive moves are we making? To, you know, Because when we had all these people from Volkswagen and Mercedes-Benz and Siemens uh, uh, and Thais uh, Industries out in Stephenville, boy, we got to bring them back for more than wind and green hydrogen. So what are we doing proactively to make sure we're part of that? Because that transition, whether or not people like electric vehicles, whether or not you trust the, the whole concept, that's irrelevant because companies will be building them we have the materials what are we doing so there's a number of different fronts there uh, that we're i guess we're engaging on number one is just trying to spread the word throughout the world that when it comes to the critical uh, minerals that we have a significant number here and there's a lot of work being done not just to develop them but we're trying to put that out there into the the public sphere put that out into the global investment sphere that there's a lot going on here that we have the mine the minerals and the the I guess the the quantities that you need in order to make it economically feasible uh, so for instance whenever we get a chance we're talking at any conference we can we're speaking to anybody we can uh, we're going where we need to go and in fact there's a huge conference here in St. John's next week where we're going to have a big build up of people in St. John's to talk about mining. The second part is that we're trying to do what we can in, ter in terms of junior explorers and mining and mineral assistance, geoscience. We are increasing our investment in that. There's a lot going on here, but we also think there's a lot unexplored. Even with staking and exploration, probably at, I would say, provincial highs, at least for the last 
20 years or more. We think that there's more, especially when we look at Labrador. So that's the second part of that. And then again, the last part of this is that, again, we, we, we need to talk to the, the industry and say, what can we do as a province? Now, the other thing is that we cannot be everything to everybody. We had the murals here, but we do want to encourage development here. We want to encourage benefits agreements here. We want to make it so that people want to come, that they want to invest. We look, look at a marathon, even though that's in gold, not exactly what you're talking about, but we want them to come and feel that it's a stable investment here, that they will get regulatory uh, stability and approvals here to be here. And then in turn, we are going to get women and men working in that because we do think there can be an increase in that. I, again, I could go on down the road. I know the feds have looked in terms of developing a resource table. They've identified us as being leaders there. So we're going to be doing more work from the federal perspective. And I think the feds need to play a role in this as well. They realize how we can impact uh, not just Canada, but the world in terms of global needs. So there is a lot going on. And if, if, if anything, I just still think sometimes it just comes down to spreading the word. Uh, even though it's hitting us every day, we're talking about it every day, there are places out there where they don't fully realize what Newfoundland and Labrador has or even where we are. We need to change that. People sometimes oversimplify secondary and tertiary processing, but, I mean, we're talking about deep water ports here and proximity to market, and the big one would be the EU. What's, what's the thought on that front? There's one thing to have the minerals, quite another to make something with the minerals before we just send it along for someone to make it and then send it back. Absolutely. So that's always been, I guess, the age-old question here when it relates to any of our resources is the, is the processing side of it. Nobody's ever wanted to see just the, the resource mined or drilled or taken out and then developed elsewhere. So we have had these conversations, I know, especially uh, when it comes to some of these critical and rare earths, uh, having chats uh, with, you know, when we look at what's going on in southern Labrador, there is an opportunity to do that processing here. Uh, but like anything, we have to find a way, look, they're not going to do it here unless it's economical. So we have to work to try to be friendly, but at the same time, keeping in mind what is our goal. Our goal is to get as much value added here, to get as many people working as possible for as long a duration of time. So it's an ongoing conversation. I think we've got some good precedent to use. Um, but, you know, it's it, it continues on, I guess is what I would say. Yeah, because it's a tricky one. And I know everyone says, you know, no more giveaways, what have you. But the companies will inevitably make those end decisions about setting up a processing facility. Uh, last one I'm minding before I have to take a break here is when the Long Harbor is being built and some of the nickel was going to Thompson or to Sudbury and the promise was always that every spoonful sent out will eventually be sent back for processing here. What's the status of that play? Well, from what I'm understanding and having been down there this summer, the reality is that we have been getting shipments from Manitoba and elsewhere to come here to be done here. So uh, I think the, the premise has stayed the same, that we, we want to do the processing here. Uh, and, and again, I, I know from talking to them this summer especially, there's shipments uh, of ore coming here from elsewhere to be done here. So it looks like they're living up to that end of the bargain. And that's a, you know, that's a, con a continual constant conversation that is always ongoing to make sure they're living up to it. But they, you know what, they have been really strong for the province, really great workforce here going at it, and there's a lot of shelf life left. Appreciate the time this morning, Minister.
Uh, last thing I'll just say, Patty, before you go to news, if you can't make it to the show Sunday night, folks, at the Mayor Brown Center, you can see it on NTV, CBC, and Rogers. Please, please tune in, and thank you to Chris Andrews and all the organizers. Yeah, and you can catch it here. We're going to have a pre-concert show with Greg Smith at 6, so there's be lots of opportunity to catch it. Some amazing performers on the list, opportunities to make donations, so please do exactly that. Thanks for this. Thanks, Patty. Okay, you're welcome. Bye-bye. It's Minister Andrew Parsons. And, of course, the member for Burgio LaPoyle. Speaking of an opportunity, maybe as suggested by Mary Brown's CEO and owner, Greg Roberts, also on Sunday they're going to donate 50% of their proceeds or 50% of their sales to the Fiona Relief effort. So that's a good thing. So always a good opportunity for a big Mary. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, John's in the queue. We appreciate his patience. He wants to talk about the Gander Hospital. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Hello. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent today. Thanks. How are you doing? Great, great. Last week on your Open Theme Friday, you had a caller uh, named Penny who called in to tell about her experience at the Gander James Payton Hospital. You might remember her nurse ratchet story that she told. I do. (laughs) Yeah. So, Penny, my mom was admitted to the Gander Hospital on the same day of Penny, and uh, and actually was roommates with Penny for two and a half weeks. And uh, I just wanted to echo the positive experience we had at at the Gander, at the Gander Hospital, I know it's a little different than a call, a tough call you took a little earlier this morning of, of an experience. And I'm certainly not contradicting that, but um, man, we had a, a, a real positive month at that hospital. Um, you know, I, I I flew down. Well, I live I live in Mississauga for the past 20 plus years, but um, I flew down a couple of days after Mom was admitted. And right from the very beginning, I remember vividly just approaching the hospital at night and the security guard, you know, saying good evening and opening the door for me. It's it just from that experience onward for that whole month, from the nursing staff, the janitorial staff, uh, nutrition, the therapists, the doctors, it was an overwhelming positive experience we had at the hospital. And I'll attribute it to a couple of things. I mean, one was I had the privilege of taking time away and spending that month with mom at the hospital and was her patient advocate during that time. And I think that goes a long way with building rapport with the, with the medical staff. And not everyone really has an opportunity to do that, but yet it matters. Um, the other thing is we realize these medical professionals, they have outside families as well and uh, their own challenges and, and such that they're dealing with. And as professionals, we do expect that not to come into the hospital, but as humans, we know it does. Sometimes it just helps to. Uh, sometimes it just helps when reacting with medical staff to. Maybe you're not feel like smiling, but you do smile and uh, well calmly, calmly discuss concerns you might have with your, with your family members' care, or any questions you, you, you really want answers to. It just helps to build that that positive rapport, even though inside your heart you're not necessarily feeling that positive about, about what's going on. But really, to echo Penny. Uh, our experience at the hospital was phenomenal, and uh, I'll even extend that to say the the month I spent in the Ganderieri was phenomenal. Patty, I felt in some ways I was on a, a mini set of come from away, um, just trying to find services that we needed, either for myself being there that long, or more importantly for my mom in the hospital. Simple things like hair care, laundry, and different things. Um, the whole community, or not the whole community, but whoever I interfaced with, was just so positive and helpful. And I just wanted to thank thank the Gander Hospital and the and the commu- local community for any help that uh, that was extended to us during during that time. That's great to hear. And these stories belong in the same show as the stories where people have had 
an unpleasant or a negative experience because we do know that there's a lot of good people in the system. Uh, how's your mom? Well, um, last week she was transferred to uh, the Miller Center, and uh, I got to spend uh, four days with her there and meet meet the staff, the nursing station, and the therapists. It's another it's, it's another positive experience. Uh, my mom will be there probably till the end of November, and I hope to get back to St. John's again. I had a had a great visit during during that five weeks. The weather turned out to be probably the best fall on record I heard, and. Uh, and mom, mom will be on the mend, so I'm looking forward to uh, to getting back and seeing seeing all that again. Um, Patty, Penny, Penny called, you know, and, and I just wanted—I know Penny listens to your show every day, so I know she's listening right now. And uh, after my mom was transferred to a different ward after two and a half weeks in Penny's room, um, my dad and I would go say hello to Penny in the mornings or evenings. But unfortunately, uh, my mom got transferred to the Miller Center so fast; uh, it was a whirlwind. And we forgot to say goodbye to Penny. So on your show today, I'd like to say hello to Penny and goodbye to Penny and apologize for not, not seeing her. And uh, I hope she's doing well. Um, and if she wishes to call your producer and get my number, because you probably have it on your call display, <laughs> feel free to do so. We'd love to hear from you. But if I don't, uh, good luck. And uh, I hope everything recovers well. Penny sounded in good spirits. Uh, that's that much I do know. And I'm really pleased that you made time for the program this morning, John. And hopefully Penny does contact Dave Williams. We'll be happy to share your number and say hello and wish your mother well for me. Thanks. And, Patty, one other quick, quick thing. Sure. You earlier mentioned universal health care. And um, just a comment, I guess. My parents, my mom was in Newfoundland as a summer traveler. We have universal health care in Canada, but it's universally federally funded. And there are differences from province to province in health care. And it just, it's just something in the crisis we have that needs a strong relook at. I'm not a federalist. I don't, I'm not saying we should federalize our health care system, but we just need to drastically look at the system so that, A, it truly is equal across all provinces. I mean, I couldn't believe during COVID I could go to Sobeys and get a free rapid test, and my family were paying for it in Newfoundland. Just, just, that's just one small example, very small, but... We need to really look at the healthcare system and even capacity. I mean, Penny had mentioned there were traveling nurses, and I met many of them. They were from Nova Scotia and Ontario. There's obviously a capacity problem, and we need to find ways to more effectively deal with capacity issues. I mean, if you take an Air Canada flight, you'll see pilots on that flight being repositioned to other cities. You see workers from Nova Scotia and Newfoundland flying out west for, um, you know, uh, uh, what is it called? remote work or, you know, your shift work. And we need to really rethink how our, our medical professionals are repositioned so that if a community center in Whitburn is closed because of a vacation, man, we can easily switch someone from other part of the province or country if that mattered, just to keep the system ticking, if you will. Um, I, I'm sorry for going back, going on on that topic. No, I, I think that makes sense to me. You know, the feds will long tell you that Healthcare is a provincial matter, a provincial jurisdiction, but we need federal leadership on this as well. You know, if there was something like a health accord body of work being done by the federal government, as well as other provinces, we could come up with some streamlining, whether it be national standards for different healthcare professionals for licensing and accreditation, whether it be for uh, reimagining the healthcare system beyond simply saying, we'll just spend a lot of money and not achieve positive healthcare, healthcare outcomes, let's reverse engineer it. 
let's look at what it takes for positive healthcare outcomes and work towards those as opposed to just trying to put band-aids on things and throw money at stuff when money is not making the difference. If it was, we'd be doing great, and the fact remains we're not. So I'd like your idea on that. I think the federal government should stop shirking any responsibility. It's not just a federal health care transfer dollar. It's a federal uh, government initiative to help the provinces try to figure out health care while we all scramble individually to try to do it. It's not helping. It's province against province against territory against territory. That's not the way this should ever, ever be when we talk about one of the most important facets of society is access to quality health care. So the feds need to do a bit more on that front. I couldn't agree more. Uh, John, last word goes to you before I go to the news. No, and just to echo that, we can fund any initiative. It all gets down to the execution, and yeah. uh, that's where the difference is needed. 100%. Thanks, John. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Take good care. You too. All, all right. right. Bye-bye. Uh, da, 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 da. Let's take a break. When we come back, Eugene's one, uh, Eugene wants to talk about accessibility, and a caller wants to talk about a subject we've spoken about many times, and we're looking forward to speaking with the Seniors Advocate, Susan Walsh, on Monday, about the long-term care review being done or demanded by or requested by Ms. Walsh and her office. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Eugene, you're on the air. Good job, uh, Paddy boy. Thanks, uh, Eugene. I'm hoping you can be able to help me out. Let's see what we can do. What's going on? Okay, uh, I'm looking for someone to build me a wheelchair ramp, and I'm having a hell of a time getting trying to get someone. I'm after phone those eight or ten contractors, but they're too busy, and they can't do it. And I had a couple that are going to phone me back. Of course, they didn't. And I had two coats that were a bit too high, but uh, I'm stuck now. I can't. Uh, I, I, I don't know who else to call. Uh, so I'm hoping your program might be able to help me. Well, let's see what we can do. Someone last week needed some minor repairs done in the home. We managed to figure that one out. So let's see here. Where are you? First off, Eugene, you're here in town. Yeah, I'm on Pennable Road. On Pennywell Road. Okay, so if you are a contractor and you have a bit of time and you can maybe give him a better quote than the ones he has in hand and you've got, you know, a scheduled opening where you can put a wheelchair ramp, which can be done pretty quickly. Uh, well, I guess depending on the kind of ramp that's required, but it can be done, I would imagine, pretty quickly. What I'll also suggest to you, Eugene, is if I hear from someone, I'll be sure to put them on to you. I'll take your number down here. But also give the folks at the hub a call. So call Tom at the Hub and see if he's got some people that he's dealt with in the past for these accessibility-type issues because he might have someone top of mind that he can put you onto right away. Yeah, I never thought about the Hub, tell you the truth. <laughs> That's, thanks very much for that. Yeah, no problem. And if anyone reaches out to me, Eugene, and can do what you need done, we'll be sure to connect the two of you and get it done. But give Tom a call because I'm sure he hears these types of issues all the time and he might have some go-to contractors that might be exactly what you need. Yeah, that'd be great because they all got to be done by the code, you know, for the council and that, right? Oh, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate that. My number is 579-5439. Yep. 5439. Okay, contractors, let's get going and give Tom a call. Let me know how we, what he has to say, Eugene. I will, yeah. Thank you very much, uh, Patty. You're welcome, sir. You're doing a great job, buddy. I Thanks appreciate that much. a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, I didn't mean to put Tom on the spot, but I suppose I already did. Uh, but Tom would be able to help him out. Let's go to line number three. You want to call her? You're on the air. Hello? Hello there. Uh, yes. Um, thanks for thanking my call. My pleasure. Uh, I'm calling to to support the request for uh, a review of the um, long-term care sector that was actually recommended back in the last report, the, the, the last review that was done. Um, 
the main the main action that I would uh, like to see coming from this report is that there be an independent body established uh, to address individual concerns on an ongoing basis. As it as it is now, a relative has no source, one source to go to, and to report or discuss any incident that or, or uh, that, that that occurs. Um, I, uh, from my own experience, I am now over three years trying to get information and a review of the neglect and abuse of care of my relative in the long-term care sector. Now, my resolution to it, the, the, the temporary one, was to remove my relative within a month from the long-term care facility. Now, not everyone can can do that. I was there every day, uh, and like a previous caller said, uh, you have to be there every day just to see what actually goes on. Now, I'm not uh, now the healthcare system. I'm, they do wonderful work at times. My relative, after that, was admitted to the health science center for a acute illness and, and was treated with exceptional care and kindness. So I'm not I'm not condemning the system, but the long-term care area, uh, it it is. It is horrific. If you're there on a daily basis, actually to the point I was afraid to leave my relative alone. The system now, after trying to get the information and, 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 and the review done of the neglect and abuse that went on, uh, it, it, it just, it, you, you just, there is no one way to uh, actually uh, get any answers. The system is designed to protect itself and and the staff. Uh, I have found that no one entity is accountable. Um, the departments deal with the legislation. The regions deal with the operations. The professional groups are off on their own. You complain about one, and they and and they say, well, it relates to the other one. So, from my experience. Uh, it, it, it's horrific out there. I, I requested the, the chart, uh, and, and that in itself is an eye-opener. There's half the time there's no charting, and the false reporting in a chart is, is terrible. And the disinformation, it, it, was, it, it was certainly an eye-opener to me. And uh, I... I if there's not an independent body that a person can go to and at least knows the pathway through the system to get answers, you get put on from one to the other, and it just goes on and on and on. Um, and, and things will never change um, for the residents if issues are not addressed on a timely basis and the system or the staff held accountable for the neglect and abuse. And consequently, this behavior becomes the norm for the staff. And, and, and the culture be, becomes, becomes unbearable. 
It's an interesting point because the Seniors Advocates Office, the way it's currently structured, is that they just look at uh, issues in general terms, like a review of the system versus individual complaints that maybe like a citizen's representative or the Ch Child and Youth Advocate Office might have a bit more flexibility in doing. So I, I take your point. We cannot have anything that's set up that protects itself. Any investigative body or advocacy work has to be done and taken seriously as they answer to the House of Assembly. It's not about protecting people. It's about exposing the shortcomings, exposing the flaws, and the people in it that may be causing some of these flaws, and dealing with it practically and pragmatically and immediately, very much unlike what happens today. So uh, I have a lot of questions for Mrs. Walsh when she calls. She's scheduled to call us on Monday to talk about this pending review. So uh, I'll just mention a couple that I have in mind. Is not only the treatment and the dignity and some abuse that happens in long-term care facilities, but what exactly is being done and what needs to be done. Then it's the separation of couples as they have different levels of care required. Then it's the number of residents living in restraints and taking antipsychotic drugs and we're so far away from the national average. So I'll add your concerns to the questions. Would you like to add anything else this morning while we have you? Well, 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 yes, my, and my last point, uh, I know I have heard her on um, the present, the present uh, uh, advocate. Uh, now, I have had the, the I called the, the Seniors Advocate Office on a number of occasions for other people, and they're very adamant. They do not deal with individual uh, things, and like my conversation to them was, well, if you don't listen to individual complaints, how do you ever determine that it's a system problem? Mm -hmm. And they finally conceded into listening to, to the complaint, which was rampant in that community. But now, I have not uh, heard, now, and this may be um, my problem, Maybe my computer is not working that well, but there is no there's no place that I can find where the dates of the public hearings are being held. There's no point in announcing to the public after the hearing is held, and I can't find it. Uh, she stated that it was on 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 the the website or or, or the computer. I can't uh, I can't find the dates of when there the public hearing is being held. And uh, um, the, 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 the date, the time, and the place. We'll see uh, if we can get I, it for you. Uh, I mean, that, but how do, well, not only me, but, like, how, how do people know when those things are occurring? Excellent question. It's one thing to have them, another thing for people to be aware of them. Uh, I would suggest on that front, because I'll try to get the information for you, but the folks at Seniors NL, they may have some of those dates and times and places on hand that you might be able to get from that organization this morning? Well, with the Seniors Advocate Office, I did call, but I didn't receive a call back from them. No, I'm suggesting Seniors NL. That's an umbrella organization that deals with seniors' issues. Oh. They may have it. If, uh, look, I heard that you had called the Advocate's Office but didn't get the information. I'm just saying that maybe Seniors NL has it for you and maybe give them a shot and you will be able to speak with someone there? Yes. Okay. That's, that's a good point. But I'm sure if I don't know, there's a lot of other people are not aware of the times either. And I think there was a public hearing held in St. John's, but... Uh, and now there's one the latter part of November, but there's no no time or or place where it's being held. Point taken. I'll see if I get the information for you. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Final, uh, final break of the day and the week. Don't go away. 
Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the president of the FFAW. That's Keith Sullivan. Good morning, Keith. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Givati. Welcome to the show. So I see you in the news responding to the most recent report coming from the province called A Review of Foreign Investment in the Newfoundland and Labrador Fishery. Your concern is that it doesn't acknowledge the true implications of foreign control. What are the true implications in your mind? Well, I think it's two two things. It was around foreign control and just the amount of corporate concentration because a lot of this came about when Royal Greenland uh, was aggressively moving to get uh, to buy uh, Quinlan Brothers in particular and certainly become the biggest uh, biggest processor in the province. Uh, and what we see is that, I mean, the, this report totally ignores that there's already a lack of competition with the, with the few number of big players in the processing side. It seemed like that was such an obvious, as obvious as kind of the nose on your face, that there is an issue. Harvesters cannot sell to other buyers. You can't go anywhere else to sell your product. Uh, people were tied on uh, for weeks without being able to sell. And this report doesn't acknowledge any of that at all. Uh, so I think there should be a concern about the level of foreign uh, ownership in our fishery, particularly when there's uh, controlling agreements, uh, illegal uh, companies illegally holding uh, inshore fishing enterprises is not fully addressed. Uh, you know, there's certainly been some talk and regulation about it, but you know, certainly the job hasn't been done. So I think we should be concerned about where the money from our, our fishery goes. And, uh, you know, this doesn't acknowledge any of that and seems to support uh, big companies in this province at the, uh, you know, really, uh, and its impact on the inshore fish harvest in our communities. It seems to be one-sided all the time. Uh, I keep getting a little bit confused with some of these matters. Hasn't there been a legal ruling on controlling agreements? Yes, uh, so absolutely there has. And just to be clear, this is primarily in the federal uh, jurisdiction. So there has been a federal ruling. You know, we, we pushed hard for it, and a lot of fishermen in our province were part of a you know, campaign to uh, make sure uh, that they were not uh, just not just against policy, but actually illegal. That happened. Now there's regulations. But then comes the uh, enforcement, Patty, and uh, so you're right in that, uh, you know, they're illegal in paper on paper uh but so far the, the enforcement hasn't been up to snuff and i think a lot of fishermen you talk to you know and any wharf around the province would uh would let you know that as well yeah i believe there was a fisherman from labrador who was one of the litigants and that was a, a uh, that case was heard in nova scotia if i remember correctly okay so you say that it's a farce to think that everything is above board. And I think a lot of the specific references are to Royal Greenland. Correct me if I'm wrong. What are we talking about beyond controlling agreements that would constitute not above board? Well, uh, I think the, the, the biggest issue is, you know, you look at what happened this year. Uh, prices were set. Minimum prices were set. We had companies here, including Royal Greenland, for example, who would not buy shrimp from harvesters at a minimum price at around $1.36. You were able to sail your same shrimp up into the Gulf of St. Lawrence and sell to a Royal Greenland plant up there for $1.46. That's what happened this year. Companies decided to get together and not pay uh, fair prices. So there's the concentration piece. 
So this report should have acknowledged that there is some level of problem and concern there. It didn't even highlight a concern. These people came in and talked to fishermen during this review, but it seemed to kind of just totally dismiss what fishermen's concerns were. And again, like we saw this summer when the first time in our history, the fisheries minister dismissed what the independent uh, fish processing licensing board put out and basically uh, put out a position that was more supportive of the big companies now and not acknowledging that, you know, we need more competition. I mean, it was it was highlighted in 2003 in a report that talked about there's already a lot of concentration in the fish processing industry. Therefore, we need a more transparent system, more information and in the collective bargaining and price setting. Uh, so since then, it's only gotten more concentrated, much more concentrated, and that transparency still doesn't exist. But uh, again, this government doesn't seem to acknowledge that weakness and the problems and frustrations that people who are trying to trying to make a living fishing in this province are having. A question that I put to the late Reg Anstey and then uh, former Fisheries Minister Loveless is what percentage of foreign ownership constitutes the breaking point? That's uh, that's an answer I'm having a hard time getting because we're always going to have some. Look no further than the fact that Royal Greenland is one of the top three players. So where do we arrive at a point where too much has been, uh, you know, too much is too much? I don't know if we're there already, in your opinion, but no one seems to be able to give me an answer uh, on that front. You think that would be a hard and fast line that we could draw and not even accept applications at the licensing board if we've arrived at the 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 level of foreign ownership we're willing to accept? Yeah, and I, I think the answer from our point of view on that is that, uh, you know, I think we've we've certainly had enough now, particularly with the imbalance and not enough options for others. Uh, so I think we're definitely, I think you, you put a, a put a freeze on that to address some of the, some of the issues you got, because I still think there's, uh, you know, a denial of some of the issues we got, even after all of the times that we've talked to the minister and having, you know, hundreds of people outside his office talking about these issues. So I would like to kind of hear the minister say, does the minister Bragg think that the lack of competition in the fishery is not is not a problem? I would like to understand that because even up to this point, uh, that hasn't been clearly acknowledged, probably quite the opposite, actually. So that's the thing that's hard in this report. Uh, you know, maybe there's a couple things coming out of it that that can be can be good. They're talking about more robust business plans and detailed business plans from uh, fish processing companies, and it alludes to some transparency as well. But that's not clear. So hopefully we can get some follow up on that. You've had the last word, Keith. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. It's FFAW President Keith Sullivan. Very quickly to the lady that called, uh, unable to find the information about the where, the when for some of the consultations regarding the long-term care uh, review that's being asked for by Susan Walsh. Here's one opportunity where you can indeed join in. It's on Tuesday, November the 1st at 7 p.m. It's an online virtual consultation in this case. What you have to do is to uh, register at, so the website is www.nlseniorsadvocateonlinesession.ca. If you do it there, you can indeed participate Tuesday, November the 1st at 7 p.m. All right, Dave's passing me something. Da, 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 da. Uh, Penny called. Okay, so John called earlier. His mother was a roommate of Penny out at the Gander Hospital. Penny did call. We've connected the two to say their hellos and goodbyes. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line.
On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk Monday. Bye-bye.